I have been fortunate to work with many donors and grant makers in my life. My favorite by far is Mary Galletti of the Tacovis Foundation, who's been funding my exploits and endeavors for as long as anyone else has, except perhaps for my mother. Way back in 2010, Mary directed a grant to an organization where I was just a young, handsome development director, and I had very little funding. One might say that I was unfunded. The grant was small for Tacovis Foundation, but it was huge for us. I used it in one of her home states of Texas. Her cousin George, a current unfunded list board member, and I uh, went to South by Southwest, where we set a world record and helped pass a state law that protects school children of Texas from harm. I used the leftover money to host the largest and most successful annual meeting in our organization's history. I learned today what I long suspected and hoped, that Mary was impressed by this grant and continued to fund Dave Moss-involved endeavors for years to come, including this endeavor you're listening to now. Mary had me buy her Washington, D.C. WeWork office. She works out of the WeWork White House location with, uh, and can see the Treasury Department right outside of her office. We sat and chatted philanthropy for several hours. But before that, I found this bio from Mary online, which I will now read to you. Mary serves as executive director and vice chair of the Tacovis Foundation. The Tacovis Foundation funds social innovation and entrepreneurship by focusing on leveraging new service models and sustainable economic development, both locally and internationally. A member of the board of trustees since 2000 and an executive director since 2009, Mary has led Tacovis to develop a concrete vision to increase the foundation's capacity and effectiveness. In 2010, the foundation added an impact investing and PR, PRI portfolio to their endowment. Mary served on the board of the Council of Foundations and chaired the Family Philanthropy Committee. Mary also serves as a member of the board of directors of the Global Shapers, an initiative of the World Economic Forum. She's the vice chair of the Starting Block Social Innovation Fellowship Program and also a member of the board of advisors of the Nexus Global Youth Summit, uh, along with me. She has spoken on the issues of generational transition and leadership cultivation in philanthropy and the nonprofit space at many venues, including the Council on Foundations, Advisors in Philanthropy, the Nexus Youth Summit at the United Nations. Uh, and she's also been a frequent contributor to WNYC's The Takeaway on supporting military families during deployment. Her husband is a army captain, I believe. She is a 2008 Starting Block Social Innovation Fellow. She was a participant in the Next Generation Leaders Summit at the White House in 2010, which is where I met her. She is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers, Washington, D.C. hub. I was not accepted. Uh, she and her aforementioned husband currently live here in Washington, D.C. with their daughter, Busy, who is lovely. And without any further ado, my interview with Mary Galletti. I hope you enjoy it. for having me in your WeWork office. Uh, let's get started with some questions, if you don't mind. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up between Cleveland, Ohio and Amarillo, Texas. So uh, So that's what, Oklahoma somewhere? Yeah, basically flying over. No, in Cleveland, we grew up on the east side, uh, you know, in the industrial transition, basically. 
and in Amarillo, our, ran our family has had a ranch in Amarillo, Texas for since about the 1870s, and so um, spent a lot of summers there, and it it's been such a long part of our family legacy that I, I often say that I partly grew up there. So you would go there for the in the summer? Often in the summer and for Christmas. Sometimes uh, at other points, you know, especially when my parents were getting divorced, it was easier to send us out. Mm -hmm. That's a really boring question. But you were, uh, it's important to know where folks are from. Thank you for, um, for your feedback <laughs> on the questions that we ask. Uh, I do think it's important uh, where we're from, and I find often it uh, informs uh, who we become. Um, do you think that, uh, so, but uh, just to understand, you, uh, Amarillo is more of a uh, vacation uh, time off type place. You went where you were going to school as a kid was in Cleveland. Yeah, though it's interesting because um, as much as that's true, I have always thought about my relationship to work in the context of Amarillo, right? The family businesses in Amarillo, the, um, a lot of who the family will become in the next 5, 10, 30, 40, 50 years is more deeply tied to Amarillo than anywhere else. So on the one hand, it was vacation. On the other hand, it is you know, a sense of duty and, and obligation and responsibility, and there's a lot of pride in that. Uh, so uh, living here in D.C., I think probably the most common question is what do you do? But um, often you get uh, where you're from because I think the, the assumption is usually you, obviously you're not from right. D.C. It is true that there are people who are from D.C. We know one. <laughs> I know. I know. I live here. I know several people who are actually from D.C. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a fairly, um, I think, it's somewhat of an elitist um, thing to say that no one's from D.C. But um, uh, it does get said common. Um, I've lived here uh, 12 years now, and when people say, where are you from, um, my first instinct is to say Maine, because right. that's, that's where I'm from. Right. I haven't been to Maine in over five years. Uh, I li again, I live here, the longest stretch I've ever lived anywhere is here in D.C., where I own a house, the only house I've ever owned. Um, I, you know, I work here, vote here, do everything here. It seems like I'm from here, but my first reaction is to say, is I want to say I'm from Maine. When you... When people ask you where are you from, what is your, what do you want to say? What is your first, where does your brain go? I say Cleveland, Ohio and Amarillo, Texas, but also I do these kinds of interviews a lot and, and that tends to be the question. Though I, I think it's, it's funny, it feels like to me like that's actually a quite common question even, you know, when you go to college, people are like, where are you from? And they, they want to hear the hometown, right? And where did you go to college? I went to Kent State, that place where those kids got shot. And actually, it's fairly well-known journalism school and fashion design school and the Quaker Soul School. Mm -hmm. But most famous for that one particular incident in 1970. Yes, I've heard it. And that is in Ohio, am I correct? It is in Ohio. It's in Northeast Ohio. It's in Portage County. Mm -hmm. So when people there, they, where are you from? They want to know where in the world you're from. They would make, if, would you say you were from outside of Cleveland since it was so close to where you were? Obviously the... You know, for, I assume most people at Kent State are probably from Ohio, or, well, yeah. or more than from anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being from Amarillo would be a lot more of an exotic answer uh, than being like, I'm from just down the road. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have included Amarillo quite so much, but when I'm at conferences or when I'm at, um, you know, speaking and things like this, I usually say Cleveland and Amarillo. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, to but I live in Washington now, and it's funny, now that I think about it, a lot of people I know say, I'm from X, but I live in Y now. New Yorkers do it too. 
I think that's important. I mean, especially for certain places, right? Like I am not, I didn't grow up here in DC. I grew up in a very, very different place that very much informed who I am. Right. So I think if they're asking that question, they're, they're trying to find out about, you know, my roots and my origins, my origins aren't here. Right. Um, so I say, you know, I've lived here for 12 years, uh, you know, but I'm from Maine. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is I do want, like, I, I, I think I'm from a very interesting place. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting to me about your answer uh, and I, this could be wrong for certain people, right? I'm more interested in Amarillo than I am in Cleveland. You being from Cleveland, I find to be a very boring answer. I have no follow-up questions to that. Well, it's you know what it, you know what it is? Um, people who are into sports are more interested in the Cleveland piece. People right. who come from the punk rock music scene or care at all about agriculture uh, or the desert or wind energy are more interested in Amarillo or just have questions because Amarillo is a place they may have heard of, but... Yeah, it's like the big Texan. Isn't that the place with the giant steak? Yeah, I know less about it, which is probably why it's more interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, also, I would say like you are not wearing a large hat right now or a belt <laughs> buckle, uh, so true. it seems more and like I, I'm not surprised that you're from Cleveland. Right. That makes sense. Amarillo is more of a like oh that's you know. Yeah. But that that could be just because I'm from so far away from Amarillo. I don't really understand it. I have more questions about it. Yeah, Cleveland is more likely to be the the place you would engage if you were in the middle of polite conversation. You could easily make go into sports, which is generally safe territory uh, for those who go into sport ball. Um, sure. Uh, yes, no, and, and uh, um, I suppose Cleveland is more, although sports are probably a big deal in Amarillo as well. I assume football, high school football is probably a very big deal there. Yeah, um, but fewer people are plugged into the Amarillo or Texas Independent School District high school football. I'm not following it myself world. at the moment, <laughs> right. although I'm sure the games are great. Then say the Cavs or the Indians. And... Uh, you said earlier that your, uh, I think the family uh, philanthropy is more focused on Amarillo or the family history more Amarillo-based? The family history is more Amarillo-based and the family business is more Amarillo-based. The family, um, so the predominance of the land that we owned was in Amarillo, Texas, but the family for a long time was also co-headquartered in Chicago, Illinois, and also then Cleveland, right? Because trains were everything and you would spend your uh, summers in Amarillo and my grandmother basically ran the ranch from either Chicago or Cleveland once she moved there to marry my grandfather. You know, but Amarillo to her was where her heart was, for the most part. You know, she mm -hmm. when she was in her late 80s, she moved back to Amarillo permanently because she knew that that's where she wanted to be more than anywhere else. Uh, do you um, uh, do you remember uh, the first time you were involved in giving or philanthropy as a child? This is a very broad question. It is. I don't mean necessarily like you attended a board meeting and voted to like yeah, support this, yeah, but like yeah, yeah. The, your first memory of uh, we're being supportive, right? Often with kids, I do ask, I ask most of my guests this question. It is uh, it's not necessarily that they gave their own money away. Kids don't have their own money. Right. Um, so sometimes right. this can be difficult to answer. I imagine there is a moment before this, but the first one I remember the most clearly is, I don't know, maybe it was first grade or something when UNICEF would hand out the little orange boxes that you would collect change when you went around and trick-or-treated also. So you would get candy and then you would also ask your neighbors if they had a penny or something. To And, and at the end, you would mail this box or your teacher would help you mail this box of change to UNICEF. And it was just sort of this fun way to raise a little bit of money for kids who huh. were struggling. I've never heard of this. I remember this. 
and I had to have been like first grade. I feel like there was something before then because we would do regular sort of toy and clothes cleans out and make a big deal about giving it away, but I can't, I can't visualize it. I can't remember that. I just know it was a thing we did. This is the first one that I, you know, can feel the box in my hand and feel nervous about asking and, um, so they, did, did it come from school or how did you get, how did you learn about this box? I can't remember if it came from school or church or Girl Scouts, but it was some organized system, right? And there's this little cardboard box. I'm almost positive it was UNICEF. It was orange and you were supposed to take it around for trick-or-treating. And it was, I, you know... And it was like, thank you for the candy. Would you like to also make a gift yeah, to UNICEF? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aren't I adorable in my in my little costume? Right. right. There are children around the world suffering. Right. And and most folks... Would Thanks for the candy and everything. Literally <laughs> a penny or a nickel or a quarter. You know, and they, they would just throw that in there. Not a bad ask. No, it was, actually, it was actually pretty great. I did that for a few years. I had seen them around occasionally. And actually, it's fun. On our neighborhood listserv here in D.C., an email goes out on our neighborhood listserv that says, just so you know, our Girl Scout troop is going to be doing this. If you are interested, have some change by the door for when they come. Girl Scouts do this? I, in to raise DC, money for UNICEF? Uh, I don't remember if it was the Girl Scouts, but there was an email. Because I, I mean, the Girl Scouts doing it makes a ton of sense. I would think they yeah. would want to raise money for the Girl Scouts, though. I, I can't remember. If you want, I can look up the email. No, you don't have to. You don't I have imagine to. imagine it would be interesting. It's more important, uh, especially this question, like your memory of it than yeah. like the accuracy of... Oftentimes we have people who like won't answer the question because they don't think they can answer it accurately. Yeah. <laughs> and no, I'm like, I no, I don't need to know like, the exact dollar amounts <laughs> and like if you got your tax receipt or not. Uh, but you know, the, the how did we get introduced to that? I find that if you were to meet a like world-famous pianist, right... He's probably going to remember the first time he played the piano or this first exposure to music. And that, that might be very important toward learning what it takes to become a world-famous pianist. So I like to ask uh, givers about their, about their first gift. That's a very interesting one. When we will, uh, I will, uh, I'll look into that. I'll see if this, what's the deal with this UNICEF Halloween Sedeca box. I'm going to be embarrassed if it's not UNICEF. If it doesn't even it's, exist? No, it doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm embarrassed if it's not UNICEF. It might be like Goodwill or something. Something but like that. It's definitely kid-oriented. UNICEF sounds, it would be a great campaign for UNICEF yeah. to do, uh, especially like if it's like, you know, hey, I'm, uh, I like it. You could also teach the kids, uh, right? Like you are, being able to go trick-or-treating is a privilege not all children on the planet have, right? And this is a nice reminder to them uh, and a way to give back, right? And you might be able to actually convince a kid like, hey, you get to do this, right? Imagine if you, like there are lots of kids who do not, right? You can help, this is, and here's, some, here's a way that you can help those kids. That's very nice. Yeah, and in a time where change is less, you know, coins are less prevalent. I actually loved that our neighborhood was sort of gave oh, yeah. up about it, so we could be prepared, and it wasn't with coins. Sort of, yeah, this is the thing, but it, it, that's the point, right? There was a uh, someone down the street from me uh, who gave nickels mm-hmm. for that's what you got oh. for how. <laughs> I forget how many. I think you got multiple, like a few nickels. Yeah. Uh, I think they were, yeah, it would be like a little, uh, some nickels, and they were like scotch taped together. Oh, wow. Which they, is like very dangerous, I they think. They prepared this. Yeah. Like, there was effort put into it. It wasn't just stopping at the bank and getting a few rolls of nickels. This was no, like... No, they had, they, they would give the little nickels out. Uh, and there, nearby, there was, a, there was a store in our neighborhood that sold penny candies, so like, that, this was a very good, this oh. was a very good gift, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> good getting, like, I remember if I was, you know, if you had 19 cents, that meant you could have 19, you could go get 19 Swedish fish. Um... Oh, it was, was awesome. literally penny candy. Yes, the Swedish fish and the Sour Patch Kids were a penny a piece. Oh wow! I like to tell kids that these days. 
<laughs> if you had no, I mean, if you had two cents, you could go and you could get two Swedish fish. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, this was very important because, like, so you could no, yeah, almost yeah. always find two cents in the ha- in your house somewhere. <laughs> right. There's always. I mean, couch fishing money was real then. Yes, very real. Uh, so you mentioned uh, a grandmother, uh, but also that you don't remember uh, exactly whose idea was or who introduced you to this UNICEF box. Um, is there someone who taught you how to be a philanthropist? Did you have a philanthropy role model as a kid? So you and I have had this conversation before. I hate the word philanthropist. Or I hate the... Is there another word you'd like for me to use? Connotation. The name of the podcast is Open Door Philanthropy. I know. And I interview philanthropists on the podcast. But the the practice of philanthropy... It's hard. It's going to be hard for me to avoid this word. I know. But the practice of philanthropy feels to me different than being a philanthropist. And I'm going to ignore your question for a minute and go on my own little tear, which we've been friends with. By all means. I'm going to do that. You're the first guest to ever do that. I doubt that. (laughs) (laughs) I know your friends. Some of them, anyway. Um... Look, I think philanthropy is for me like cooking, right? Everyone is a giver and everyone can cook a meal, but not everyone is great at philanthropy and not everyone is a chef. But the idea around the word philanthropist and how we use it these days tends to be attributed to just person who has a metric ton of money who is mildly inclined towards giving it away. Right? We don't have a set of definitions around it. And this isn't to say that that should be sort of a policy guide, but the idea of comparing, say, Bill and Melinda Gates, who have converted their the majority of their lives' work to philanthropy at this point, with, I don't know, some of the folks whose names are all over a lot of buildings but don't actually think about their gifts, don't actually think about leverage, don't actually think about impact, don't listen to their staff if they have any, they just write big checks. I I struggle with calling them philanthropists. I I run a family foundation, so I'm comfortable with that language, Mm -hmm. and I practice philanthropy, emphasis on the word practice, but the word philanthropist, I just get squeegee about. I I absolutely agree. People use the word uh, philanthropy uh, somewhat cavalierly, I think. Uh, you know, one of the, I, and I am very interested in uh, with these interviews and with the work that we do, and with my own philanthropy, uh, in learning about what it takes to be a good philanthropist. Um, a story I've been telling lately, right, is I sort of compare being a philanthropist uh, to becoming uh, the center fielder for the Yankees, right? Uh, I am relative. I'm not a big Yankee fan, but I am relatively certain that every single person who's played starting center fielder for the Yankees was one of the best center fielders on the planet, uh, and that he became that way through years and years of hard work. And I can say he confidently because it's 100% men. <laughs> up to this point. Up to this point. Up to this point. You, that's a challenge, ladies. Get out there. No, and if there's a, if there is, and I, I think it's entirely possible that there's a woman uh, on the planet right now who could eventually play center field for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, she's going to need to learn, learn, how, learn all the rules of baseball, right? get into the best possible shape she can be in, probably spend several decades learning the sport of baseball, going to baseball camps, meeting with baseball coaches, probably need a nutritionist and a trainer, and you're going to have to go see doctors. You know right? there are professional women baseball players. Just and never, that have never started at center field for the Yankees. No, look, this is a not rabbit hole. I'm not trying to make the gender comparison, but my point is, is that we, if, if, if your goal is to become center fielder for the Yankees, right. uh, we actually know how you do that. Yeah. We know exactly how you do that. 
We know the skills that you need to, to build up. And in particular, you have to try very, very hard. Right. You have to make it your life's commitment to become the best center fielder possible. Right. Right. And then uh, it's a bit of luck too. And yeah, you you probably need to get lucky, right? But you uh, but you absolutely won't get there if you don't try to, if you're not if you if you don't become a good center fielder. Totally. They're absolutely not going to put you out there. Right. Right. It won't even if you are if, if I have a hundred billion dollars and now I want to be the center fielder for the Yankees. No. <laughs> no, maybe like you might be able to get like a one uh, make a wish type situation, right? Where you get to play once, but you're never going to be on the roster as the starting center fielder unless you get really good at it. Right. We, there is no, we do not have this in philanthropy, right? There are professional philanthropists, people who work at uh, at foundations. Yeah. yeah. How many of them went to philanthropy camp every summer when they were a kid? Yeah. Right. How many of them had philanthropy coaches in high school? Right. right? How many of them actually actively participated in philanthropy before they before they became professional philanthropists? Right. Uh, so to the, to that extent, the, uh, when it comes to being good at the skill you've chosen for yourself, uh, every center fielder who's ever played for the Yankees is better at being a center fielder than every philanthropist we've ever had is, is at being a philanthropist. I think there are a handful of folks who are thinking very hard, like Gates for, but again, Gates is not, he is, this is not his life's work. Well, He's not been trying to be the best philanthropist in the world for his entire life. Right? Well, we don't, and if you think hardly about anybody it, has. has how many thousand people, like the, Bill and Melinda are fine individuals, but Gates is a foundation, right? And and the foundation itself has thousands of people working for it, mm. who in many cases are the best in their field, are very close to the best in their field of the stuff that they work on and think about. Mm. And that's the more important point, is that Bill and Melinda, sure, are, are the head, but I feel skeptical about calling them the philanthropists as opposed to their senior program officer for malaria, right? Or their deputy vice president for... So to go back to the Yankees, right? The, the, the center fielder has a hitting coach. He has a fielding coach, right? Who yeah, but he's the one who actually has to perform at the end of the day. At the end of the day, Bill and Melinda Gates don't have to perform. They, yes, they have to, they, have to set the, the, they have to set the direction. They have to decide what, the, what they're going to fund, right? They decide... Well, they, they are ultimately, especially for the larger grants, I assume probably there sure, are Sure, but then, then your analogy works better as the coach of the Yankees. I think, so uh, let's forget Gates, right? Just an individual right. philanthropist who does not have a team. Sure, right? sure, None sure. of them are, there is no one out there trying as hard to be a good philanthropist as, like, and forget the Yankees, right? The yeah. center fielder for the Indians, the center fielder for the Royals. All of these people have tried harder to be good. Anyone working at any level of professional sports and lots of amateur athletes yeah, yeah, have, yeah. have spent a lot like there we because it's incentivized differently you're not if you if you're if you go out there and you play in center field and you make three errors and you go 0 for 4 at the plate they're going to talk about you on the news right they might even talk about trading you right that's that that never happens to any philanthropist no that's absolutely true i agree uh and so and as a result is right basically we have people playing in center field who can't throw or catch yeah Though we do get worried, we do talk about things like Peter Thiel calling his funding of the lawyer for Hulk Hogan to destroy Gawker, calling that his philanthropy. We do talk about that. Mm -hmm. right? We have talked about Laura John Ar Arnold and their foundation funding the drones in Baltimore uh, extrajudicially in total violation of the citizens of Baltimore's yes. Fourth Amendment rights. We have talked about that. Um, it, that is not the same, obviously, as trading, but... They're not going to lose their jobs. They're not going to lose their jobs. But not, even gonna lose their, not even going to lose their taxes. We are starting to have the conversation very, very carefully, though. Increasingly, uh, including yours truly, there are people willing to go out there and uh, criticize philanthropy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a there's that guy David Callahan from Inside Philanthropy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think um, we you might have been at Nexus with me when 
Buffett's son came? Peter? Yeah, I think it was Peter Buffett. Mm-hmm. He, ri- he had written an op-ed in the New York Times the day before, mm-hmm. and it was about the philanthropy industrial complex. Yeah. Right? Uh, and um, there are, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me when someone who's in a position to do something about it, <laughs> instead of doing something about it, like, just, uh, decides to... Uh, someone should do something someone, about if it. Only someone, if only somebody... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, we are, and I think, uh, go back to, uh, I, uh, I'm, sh- I'm quite certain no one ever criticized my grandmother's philanthropy. Yeah. Uh, and if they did, it would have been a waste of your time. Didn't occur to her. She doesn't think about it as, um, some, a skill she could get better at. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the, uh, or, or perhaps she did. It's just, it's a very simple, simple skill, right? Like did the money successfully get to the grantee? Right. right. Then you're right. a good philanthropist, right? right? I have, I've made uh, a number of grants and gifts in my life. And 100% of the time, the money got to where I was trying to send it. <laughs> I have never failed to actually get that grant there, right? Sometimes it's a little bit hard. Sometimes you're just handing a check over. Sometimes actually you got to do a transfer, right? And you got to right. get the numbers right. And I've, I, 100, I'm batting 1,000 uh, on getting the grant there. But every single one of those grants I had, there was social change I wanted to accomplish in the world yeah. with that grant. I did not always accomplish it. Well, in fairness, too, uh, there are a couple of, uh, Rob Reich at Stanford at PAX, uh, co-published with Lucy Bergholz, and it's actually, for you radio listeners, on my bookshelf, uh, a book of essays called Philanthropy in Democratic Societies, really starting to wrestle with what it means to have these actors that aren't necessarily accountable, either by election, by market forces, by anything, what that means in the context of democracy. Um, and in some cases, it's a really powerful force, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's an argument to be made that you need these uh, tools to get sort of outside the system occasionally and address market failures or have these sort of petri dishes. That's real. On the other hand, there are real ways in which it undermines what we would consider fundamental values if we value democracy and, and the rights of people to decide what a good life means for them. Um, especially as we have started to conflate increasingly advocacy and to some degree lobbying and even the possible repeal of the Johnson Amendment, which is what separates the ability from churches to uh, participate in political activities like lobbying Mm -hmm. uh, or straight electoral activities. Um, That's why we're really wrestling with this. And it's been interesting in the course of the last four years as we've transitioned from the Obama administration to the Trump administration watching positions sort of flip on that, right? Under the Obama administration, it was mostly the right wanting to change a lot of these rules, and now it's it's the left, because we're all sort of very worried about, if, if you're the left, you're worried about women's reproductive health, you're worried about immigration rights, you're wanting to have the tools of philanthropy to work outside government. I would like to talk about uh, government and philanthropy, and I have some yeah. questions to that sense. I'd like to wrap up, though, with your, oh, yeah. um, with early Mary. Uh, and so, right, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think the majority of people, uh, don't think of, uh, philanthropists the way that I think of it. Uh, I think of it as a, right, like, uh, I know some people who are doctors yeah. uh, and who are trying to be the best doctor they can possibly be. Yeah. I am trying to be the best philanthropist I can possibly be yeah. using the same, same tactics that my doctor friends use to become good doctors. Um, right, there's a different discipline, right? You could be a lawyer, journalist, whatever, sure. right? I actually did go to philanthropy camp. <laughs> did you really? Uh, I, well, uh, we didn't necessarily call it that, uh, but I, I was involved in some youth giving circles. Oh. Uh, I, um, one of the things I like to say is that uh, when I was considering getting uh, a master's degree of some sort, 
uh, looked into some a few different programs and everything. Uh, but then I found the Slingshot Fund. Yeah. Uh, and I realized I could do three years of that for the cost of one year of going to school. Right. And I would get to make grants. Uh, and at the time, that now I believe there are, um, I think this is increasing, and I think it is one of the Buffets that funds this and, along with others, uh, there are programs where you can learn about philanthropy. Yeah, I, know people, yeah. I know people who have yeah. master's degrees in philanthropy. Even I, met, I was recently speaking to somebody who has a doctorate uh, in philanthropy. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to know what one studies in one of those programs, right? Because mine was very, mine was a practical education. I like to think of it as like my residency. Yeah. We had some of the some of the best givers in the world. I'm sitting right next to a, a book by Sharna Goldsecker, who was there back then. Uh, you know, we had uh, Charles Bronfman come in. We had Joel Solomon come in, talk to us about, you know, give us trainings on giving and stuff. I learned an enormous amount there. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I think there are people there who were just, you know, doing the family philanthropy, right? Not really thinking about it as I'm building skills. Um, some people were there in the room. It's really fine whatever way you were doing it. Yeah. Um, I was there to learn how to become a better philanthropist. Uh, and uh, I also was a, I was a facilitator for... Uh, for uh, a teen giving circle here in town, which is yeah. very important to me. I think there should be a lot more of that yeah. in high school, uh, where the where the teens decide where the money goes. I had to teach them how to about the process of that yeah. and the skills involved. Right? But they uh, and right, I I can be influential. I, I <laughs> the money did end up going where I hoped that it would go. Uh, who I'm knows how much? Who knows how much uh, how much influence I had on that? Uh, no, I do believe that they that they um, you know. They, I gave them accurate, uh, accurate information. Uh, one of the things that um, this is another topic I'd like to get to eventually: the the, the idea of bias, right? Uh, you know, I'm in there. We're considering two programs. I know that one's flawed fundamentally. Uh, it's not biased for me to point that out to the kids considering making a grant to it, because right. I'm a professional in the field who has that information. Uh, it would be biased of me to withhold it. Yeah. Uh, but they, you know. The, because I have a previous relationship with a nonprofit, some might say, well, it's a conflict of interest. You shouldn't be saying anything, right? But again, it's flawed, and I know that. Um, so, um, uh, uh, to go back, you are uh, in a, you're getting a, some sort of degree now. You're in some sort of graduate program. I am. Uh, have been involved practically in philanthropy for quite some time. Yeah. Um, so I would say, like, you... Uh, you know, unlike those people out there who think all philanthropists are great, a DC city councilman once told me, "Anyone who wants to give money away in my city is doing a great job." Oh no! I sorry, I just I don't actually remember his name. <laughs> no, I do remember his name. I just don't want to say it. I don't like him very much. Um. <laughs> but I was at an event uh, at the Lookout actually, which closed just a couple days ago, uh, and I and he was talking about increased funding from the for the arts. You know, I said. You know, this is a collective full of individual creative artists, none of whom who could who are all extremely talented. Everybody here is extremely talented. None of whom could get a grant from any of the major foundations in town to do one of their art projects. Um, you know, if, with with all the you know, you can talk uh, about city funding for these individual artists and trying to create the uh, creative economy. But when the arts programs of all the major foundations are focused on Washington Symphony Orchestra and Kennedy Center and like large fancy gifts of that sort, uh, that does, it does not trickle down from Kennedy Center to my like individual creative partners, right? And so like you know how are you how are you your goal the goal of the city it's one of the five pillars of the DC's strategic plan right now uh, is to increase the creative economy make it possible for people to work 
as professional artists, right? So how are you, I asked, how are you working with foundations to, to encourage them to, to support some of these artists? And his answer was, uh, anyone who wants to give money away in my city is doing a great job and I would never tell them how to do that. Um, <laughs> right, and so, uh, you know, even our government officials who are working on that issue who can need the help from these people aren't willing to say it, right? That I think that's, that's, it would be great for him to say, like, I'd like to see them make more gifts. Yes, I'd like to see them make more gifts. Yeah. I, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm going into their offices and I'm talking to them about that. That was the answer I wanted to hear, uh, but, but I'm not, right? Well, let me just, so, um, I, I agree with you, I disagree with his comment, but I'm just thinking about the Kennedy Center and one of the amazing programs that they have. It's not a waste to give to the Kennedy Center. No, 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 especially... I don't mean to imply that. Every, every day... Big fan, go all the time. Every day at 6 or 6.30, <laughs> they actually have a free concert, and yes. all of these local music groups can sign up and perform there. I, I, I know there is a process by which to do that, but it is not overly exclusive or cumbersome. It is... Mm -hmm. it, people can play at the Kennedy Center... Uh, in a way that it's an incredible venue, it's it's an incredible space, and people coming to see other shows often get to catch these these um, performances, or even and, and folks visiting the State Department will go over there and catch this little six thirty show, and and so that there are Washington those, Ballet, Washington yeah, Symphony, yeah. all these things are are wonderful. My my grandmother was a big supporter of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for a long time. Absolutely, these things are doing when it comes to arts, doing a pretty good job of bringing the not a pretty good job. I think they, they if you if you talk to the development director there, he'd say he needs to raise more money, right? Oh yeah, well, and I, I assume you were interviewing my cousin George, or will interview my cousin George at some point. But his views on we hang out. Art. <laughs> we were just speaking about art, but a lot of the stuff also, that he does. Also, board member. Yes, uh, he's on the on the board of directors. My cousin George, it, he thinks. A a lot about community art and how you activate community artists and I, I don't know that we've yet figured out the answer to that especially in cities for a bunch of reasons one of them is that they are often quite subversive and cities at this point are are very much in the business of risk mitigation and so how you sort of hold space for that kind of delightful mischievous joyful sometimes uh, snarky, sometimes anarchic, sometimes provocative in great ways, sometimes provocative in hard ways, community uh, art can be really hard, especially in D.C., mm -hmm. which is its own complexity because so much of our free space is owned so, by the National Park Service. Well, uh, simultaneously having several conversations. We are. Uh, art, arts funding could take probably take up an entire episode. And I was just last week up in New York talking to George about that in particular. One of the things I want to make sure um, you know, at the unfunded list uh, I think at the moment we pay a disproportionate amount of attention to uh, like major problem solvers. Yeah. There's this huge problem in the world. We have a new program that'll fund it. You know, give us some feedback, right? Yeah. We do review proposals for art, right? Yeah. And and increasingly these uh, these projects are it's art, but also solving a social problem in some way, right? right. Uh, very rarely art for art's sake, right? We've to the to the, the it seems like some sort of like fantasy fever dream that a young artist might get a grant to do an art project the way that they want to do it. Right. Um, th throughout history, right, that there were young artists who were able to, to have patrons or, or to get sponsors to make art the way that they want. Now, I think you would probably need to have a relationship with the, the Kennedy Center or yeah. with uh, an existing entity, right? The, of all the areas to be risk adverse as a funder, arts seems like a very strange <laughs> place to be risk adverse because even if you take a huge risk right you still created some art right the worst thing that could possibly happen is you made bad art yeah but it's hard to which happens at the Kennedy Center people. too like, the, I've seen bad shows there uh, no I know I, George talks about this more eloquently than I do 
And that is the biggest issue with funding that kind of community art is the funders and the artists need to find each other and have the kind of trust that it'll yes. make it work out. And that relationship is really, really hard. And George, as a person, given that he built stuff uh, at Burning Man, given the way he moves through the world and the other festivals that he builds art for, uh, has been able to do that more successfully than certainly the rest of us have been in the foundation. But even he sort of struggles because if he's wearing his foundation hat, it becomes a whole different conversation, which is, of course, mm -hmm. a power dynamics conversation that you and I have had a hundred times and we'll have a hundred times more, I presume. Uh, yes, absolutely. And with, I mean, and that, um, that power dynamic between artists and the people who pay for their work. Um, and the, the result is uh, just to, to close the loop on the, the my individual creative artist friends they do their own art projects all the time and the way they do that is they do some bullshit client work for a few weeks yeah and then they take and then they do their their project because it's much easier for them to make a Verizon commercial or something yeah. than it is to approach the DC Commission on the Arts of, of Humanities or or uh, any of the number of foundations here in town that from I mean, most of the major local foundations in DC have have a focus yeah. on funding the arts, yeah. uh, but it would not occur to most of these people because the, the the length of time, right? right? And I've tried to fundraise for some plays and stuff around town, and usually by the time you could get that grant, you the, the project you're planning on doing is over. Right, like you're, you're like, no, to, we're doing this play. You're needing <laughs> to do a season like two seasons ahead is what you're asking for. Um, but the uh, the the original topic, and I would like to um, you know, um, uh, close the loop with uh, uh, on your background with this question. Right, like you know, um, you know, talk to me about the skills building you've done through your life to be a philanthropist, a philanthropist as I define it, right? Someone who, and this is, this is my own Dave definition. I'm aware other people have other definitions, right? But this is somebody who sees social change that they want to have happen in the world and makes grants uh, for the purposes of accomplishing that change. Yeah. Um... And if you don't think that's you, please feel free to <laughs> feel free to. Correct me, but I do think I do think that is you. I just hate the word, uh, but I will, great word. I will operate in your in your definition in your framework. If there's an alternate word, no, it's fine. For, um, for Clemstock, <laughs> you're uh, for Clemstock. You is were that just a better... really excited to say that word, weren't you? I just top of my head. Yeah, but it but it felt when nice. I started saying it, I didn't know how it was going to end. But it, was, it has a nice for Clemstock. To it. Yeah, it's a very it's... natural. Yeah. Uh, we're sitting here with world class for for Clemstock. <laughs> Mary Galetti is going to talk to us about some of the proclaimed stockery she's done. <laughs> that is an outstanding word. Um, I'm write it down so I don't forget it. It's, I would recommend it. I don't know how to spell it. I would say probably F E R. Two R's. M. K. No, you're, you forgot the N. Oh, I see. I thought it was firm Clemstock. No, for, for Clemstock. Yeah, nice. Two R's. Yeah. Though I feel like if we were in Germany, there would definitely be an umlaut over that O. Only in Germany. Oh yeah, maybe Sweden. We're not in Germany. Turns out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did I do? I started, honestly, I started by, um, I read a couple books. They were quite basic. I couldn't even tell you what they are, what their titles are, but I have them still. I have them on a bookshelf in Ohio. Philanthropy books? Philanthropy books. You, uh, did you read them on purpose because you knew you would have to give money away and wanted to be better at it? Yes. Um, and then I also, I, I Googled, frankly. You know, it was... This is how one learns it's these days. It's true. 
and um, I came across a session. Actually, I'm going to take a step back, if that's okay. The foundation was created in 1998, right? And it was created because in 1998, estate tax incentivized the creation of foundations. And it was created both, uh, mostly just to build this one thing, this Performing Arts Center. And I know that, Dave, you've heard this story a hundred times, so it's actually really important in this context. And the reason it's important in this context is because I turned 18 in the year 2000 and was invited to join the board of the foundation when I turned 18. So came to my first board meeting formally that summer, summer of 2000. And... The year 2000. I'm sorry, I was gonna not, I was gonna like, I mean, no, but, no, but then it's just gonna be in my head the whole time she's talking. And so I went to my first board meeting, I'm making scare quotes for the listeners. I went to my first board meeting and we already decided what the money was gonna do. I think we were discussing a, a remaining $5,000 that year. And so like, there had been these entry moments for the next couple of years where we would go through the perfunctory act of this board meeting, even though the money had been allocated, but we had to, for whatever reason. And my grandmother was interested in, in the cousins as they turned 18, there were five of us total that were her grandchildren, um, understanding this kind of process so that they would be prepared for joining nonprofit boards and whatever. So that's actually my formal for Clemstock education. It started there in this very silly board meeting that was quite perfunctory. A few years later, when we were done with the Performing Arts Center commitment and had unexpectedly been re-endowed far faster than we thought, then we had to figure out how to do the foundation kind of more for real. And that's when I started Googling and that's when I read the books. But How realized, old were you then? Uh, it was 2007, 2008, it really started. So I would have been 25, mm -hmm. Um Okay. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Uh, and you've been reading books since? You I, still read things about philanthropy? I do still read things about philanthropy, though they tend to be more the theoretical stuff and slightly more academic. I find mm -hmm. the more practical... I mean, I'll read like reports and stuff out of foundations or reports about the state of philanthropy, but I find, you know, sort of medium pieces on it, not very good. You know who's great? Felix Salmon is great on philanthropy. I really like his stuff. Totally read him. He's a cause and effect. Uh, one of the things I've found is that, uh, like I said, a lot of it is very academic. Yeah. Uh, the, the stuff that uh, gets out in the media that I can read. Uh, but uh, as far as I can tell, speaking to people who've gone through you know, master's or even doctoral programs on philanthropy. Uh, I am not doing my master's on philanthropy, sure. for the record. Um, but um, the, the, those those programs that exist are, they tend to be quite academic, which makes sense to me. Uh, my own, I have a BFA in theater, uh, which we did some plays, Yeah. Uh, but most of what we did was discuss theater. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we read the, the, a lot of um, a lot of the plays we read. There are these plays that have been written that are very good for like reading and learning about that you would never perform. 
this is not a. No, they're, they're not <laughs> understand. Right, and that's what you read in college. And whenever they perform something, they, they're like, well, we're, we're on a campus, so we should do, like, they never just do a regular play that they think people would want to watch. No. It's always like a highly experimental, like, yes. what if, and what if it was in Italy in the 50s, right? right. Like, um, well, but I should say that's actually where I feel like I learned philanthropy. It's good for learning, yes, but like the, the I mean, with philanthropy, to me, perhaps because of my own, because uh, I learned it practically. Um, but that, that, that was going to be my point, is that I started Googling and then I ended up at actually at an Ohio Grantmakers meeting. And the Ohio Grantmakers uh, introduced me to the Council on Foundations. And I went to their big The council. Meeting, the council. And I went to their big meeting in 2008. Um, and I found that I learned more. It was a different kind of practicality than you. Like I, I got introduced faster to the more institutional foundation side, like foundation staff, right? Program officers and senior vice presidents and CEOs of foundations and community foundations in particular who think about their work different than differently than the people physically writing the checks. I find, I find. Um, I think they're they're much more hmm. they're they're much more technocratic. There are certainly exceptions that prove that rule, but I find the staffers are, are much more technocratic. They see their work much more um, professionally and as an avocation. They talk about the field differently than people who write checks. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I, I wonder, actually, I say all that because I think it's part of why I bristle against the word philanthropist because none of them would define, none of those staffers would define themselves as philanthropists, or very few of them would. Oh, yeah, I think if you, uh, every foundation is very different. Yes. Um, most don't have anybody working there. Right. Uh, the ones that do have people, the people who work there, uh, I think I would also hesitate to say this is a philanthropist, right? Uh, very rarely are they, right, the one, they're pursuing someone else's, the social change that someone else has defined. Yeah. Uh, but it's often their passion also. Like yeah, well, you wouldn't there. go work there, right. Yeah. Um, right, the, but um, uh, just like working on a nonprofit, right? You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they... Um, a lot of the work, you know, and this is, depends on the, I think a big, there's lots of big things you need to look at when you're um, assessing a foundation, right? One is the founder living don't, like, is there a living donor involved right, 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 uh, right. in the process, which is just an, like, that's, and I, uh, uh, oftentimes the people who come to unfunded list, like, don't even think to, like, ask that, like, yeah. the person I approached, right? If, if that's the case, that person's in charge of where the, of the giving goes. Yeah. They can have a policy written. But, but yeah. yeah right? And even some of the places that allegedly have the, like, most strict, uh, algorithmic, I don't want to name any names, but algorithmic processes, right? <laughs> right? End of the day, Kari Tuna doesn't want to fund it, it doesn't get funded. Oops. <laughs> no, I, no, it's true. Oops. It's uh, no, true. And, they, and shouldn't. You shouldn't ever have to give a grant to something you're not comfortable giving a grant to, right? right. But lots of times, because, I don't know, they make it easier for themselves or whatever, uh, they, you know, they come up with systems Right, and this is how we decide where grants go. Right, I happen to think you should never, never say this is how we decide where grants go until you actually read it. I don't know um, the if I knew what the, the like. There's, there's some so there's things I want to see improved about the world. Right, yeah. if I knew how to improve them, I wouldn't need to use. I, philanthropy wouldn't be the tool I used. I would go and I would do them. Right, uh, philanthropy because I don't. I'm I'm looking for other people's ideas to support them. Right. Um, Lots of times with the living, uh, with living donors, especially if they don't have, if they got into philanthropy from somewhere else, is what I call the JV business problem. Uh, they look at it like a slightly less important, easier version of running a business. Mm. 
um, which is not the case. Is actually, I think, it, to, to actually uh, accomplish something with philanthropy is very difficult. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, the um, uh, all uh, all quite interesting. I hope that you um, uh, continue to uh, learn and be uh, thoughtful about your giving. Uh, very appreciated. <laughs> uh, and uh, but you know the, the the a lot of these folks who and we you know a lot of these program officers at foundations they you know will review proposals for us and they give a very interesting kind of feedback. Um, you know, they're very it's 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 extremely inside the box um, type stuff. Um, Can you say more about what you mean by that? There are there's only a few things <laughs> about uh, uh, philanthropy. Uh, that will that are not academic that will say um, that are like known best practices in the field, uh, and I'm not. Uh, I think I'm probably not going to do the best job of these are sort of half formed thoughts. This is something I've been thinking about lately. But uh, for instance, um, let's say there's a foundation that, that that won't fund you if you spend more than ten percent on your overhead. Some oh, of these some yeah, of these foundations yeah, exist, yeah, yeah. right? The program yeah. officer is just trained to like check. Are you spending more than ten percent? Right. And then that's not philanthropy. You are just like that's a you're a, yeah. a, a, any paper pusher at any business. Right. We 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 have that. It, it's not the ten percent rule. Or are you? We only fund in these zip codes, right? right? Or we only fund on this on this in you know in this specific area, right? So that right. they're they're doing work that's far closer to being an accountant or an auditor right. than it is to being a philanthropist, which is not how I would do it. It's and true. it may be very useful for these folks. It's not, it's... Uh, I think it depends on what you think you're trying to accomplish, right? It, so you and I have had this conversation before uh, where I give a speech about how I think the idea of philanthropic risk is bullshit, right? You throw money at a problem and you see what happens. Like, if you, to your point about community art, either way, art has happened. Even if it's bad art, it's still prompted some conversation, right? Mm. Um and I gave some version of this speech at a bar to a couple of friends and, and a person I didn't know very well. And the person I didn't know very well, it turns out, is in public health funding. And she pushed back pretty hard in a way that I hadn't fully considered and really should think more thoughtfully about in terms of education also, right? When you're messing around with kids' education, there are implications, right? When you're messing around with public health, there are implications. Education funders broke education. Education funders broke education. We it's it, their fault. It totally is. Well, also the you know conservative movement to defund public schools and starting the beast and all of that. All of with, that. They, they used philanthropy. They, that's right. It, like and the Amway people. The wicked. The wicked problem. Now that now they run the education department. Right. Right. What I would say is. I still think that the idea of risk capital and philanthropy is sort of shenanigan, that it's not quite, you know, that, that money out the door is money out the door. But what we have to think through is how we are messing up the market. And that's the piece that we haven't gotten really smart about. And I, I hadn't realized how lazy my language had been mm -hmm. about thinking about the way we mess up the market and like thinking it. about the way we shift incentive structures to mess up the market without intending to, right? It's the, the inability to see past the ends of our own noses, so to speak. Uh, yeah, no, I've said often there are, you know, I think there are risk funders uh, who will fund the, like, larger, better-known entities mm -hmm. rather than, like, something new that's coming along. Yeah. Because And they, they'll justify that as, well, I don't want to take a risk funding this, right? Well, when you're funding the establishment program, right, oftentimes these, these places are maintaining the status quo, right? right? You're actually taking a far bigger risk by cementing their position in the market, uh, you know we have um, you know, uh, or 
uh, increasingly the newer things that do break through and get a lot of funding, not so much because it's a great idea, because it's having great impact, um, but because there's a, two things usually, I've noticed. A uh, very charismatic leader who is good at fundraising, yeah. Yeah, yeah. probably comes from wealth themselves, or at least from a universe where they had access to it. Yeah. Right? They were going to summer camps or boarding school or something. Uh, and uh, good at at um, massaging the metrics. Yeah. They have lead metrics that make it look like the program is being very uh, impactful. I don't necessarily want to um, name any names today, although I'm sure if you listen to all, all every last episode of Wine Grants and uh, of Open Door Philanthropy, you'll probably I probably do drop some names on occasion. But um, the like the the folks out there, people who send me proposals very often do not are not good fundraisers are not able to right. run in those circles right. right and also are too honest and have too much integrity to massage their metrics in a way that looks attractive to funders well also funders talk a big game about wanting to hear about your failures wanting to hear about what's not working well and some of them do but probably they do not right and we we try to be those funders but we are I dr- I genuinely do yeah um but especially now Right, because we're trying to give feedback to the areas where you're yeah. unsuccessful. Yeah, uh, that's where we can be most the most improve where we can improve you. That's an interesting next version of the unfunded list. Let's look at your like. Say more if, about that. <laughs> so, uh, what if? That's my Mary impression, by the way. Uh, can you say more about that? Um, you have asked me to say more about that twice in this interview. I do say that quite a bit. <laughs> you know, actually, it's an Amy Lazism, by the way, for the record. I think I've heard her say that too. Yes, I I know you have. I can promise that you have. I think she, I think she did an episode of Wine Grants. We can seems likely, and she probably we'll listen did. and we'll see if she. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hello, Amy, if you're listening. <laughs> can you say more about that, Amy Laz? What might that look like? Um, Amy Laz is great for those who don't know her. So no, here would be here would be an interesting idea. Like, what if, in theory, Tacovis and I'm not saying Tacovis would do this, but what if Tacovis would hand over its entire portfolio of grants? Uh, that came in for a cycle and unfunded list evaluated them and and compared it then to how our actual board shook out. Awesome. That would eliminate, I mean, that, that wouldn't take into account the due diligence process on the front end that some of our grants go through depending on who brings them. But I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, that is very much uh, a priority for us. Um, like I said, uh, we can get, um, I, I can get one proposal sent to me every six months from, from various nonprofits. Uh, it does take a decent amount of my time because we are a unique program explaining why someone should send a proposal, uh, you know, talking about the, the, the process, getting in front of these folks. These people are all incredibly busy, incredibly busy. Like they, they miss actual grant deadlines because they're so busy. Yeah. Uh, no, they shouldn't, they should prioritize better, but it happens. <laughs> yeah, their um, grant cycle happens too, with their program cycle. The majority of yeah. proposals we reviewed came in after my deadline, yeah. which is very, which, you know, I am, I've been in their shoes, I understand. Yeah. Uh, we're very tolerant on that front. Uh, and we want more proposals to review, but like, it's, you know, it's problematic. I, I also, at the same time, my committee grows uh, all the time. It's very easy for me to recruit uh, top-notch evaluators to be on the committee. It's probably the thing I do best here. Yeah, my office uh, needs to be on the committee. Well, it's a it's a great volunteer opportunity. You yeah. do it in your own time, and you actually really do get to help these folks out. And it's very interesting. You learn about new stuff. Uh, there's lots of reasons why someone listening to the podcast right now might want to go to the website and apply to be an evaluator. It's a really enjoyable way to spend a few hours. And the um, the onboarding interview is with uh, the most delightful of the mosses. Jane Moss. Jane Moss. Yes. 
which Jane is... Jane Moss is a delight. And by the way, the Jane Moss special. I have never done the Jane Moss special. What is the Jane Moss special? Jane Moss reviews all of the... Oh, yes. Grants. She gets. She is the only one who's who's read every single grant uh, that we've reviewed. Uh, all the folks who submitted last round. Uh, Mom has begun reading your proposals. <laughs> uh, she will find all the misspellings and uh, grammatical errors that you made in your proposal, and you did make some. <laughs> <laughs> we. It's a fun uh, fun fact. We have not uh, we've not ever reviewed a proposal where we didn't catch uh, at least one spelling or grammatical error. Uh, usually several. We've uh, over 150 so far. I think I think we got to 200 in this batch. And these aren't just the squidgy ones where it's like maybe you don't believe in the Oxford comma. It's like no real grammatical error. Yeah. Uh, undeniable. Yeah. Uh, and you can. I mean. Well, in, in the era. Of I'm not. A, I'm not a fi- just to say. I'm not a fan. I don't think we should use the Oxford comma, but I do believe it exists. <laughs> 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 I'm not like a denier or anything. By the way, that's a whole different podcast, the Oxford comma, so we should just table that and move along. Uh, you know, I did actually, because we have lots of like professional writers, grant writers and stuff on the committee, yeah. I use it for our like official oh, uh, communications yeah. just because I don't want to have to like... Deal with it. I just don't want to have to explain why we don't. Yeah. Um, the Eventually, it's going to go... Gonna go away. We won't be using it. I want to sit in again. that meeting, the meeting about the Oxford comma. I would delight in that. I think it's fine because of the because we're editing and because I think most people are still using it. Yeah, we still use it. Yeah. Um. The but uh, yeah the uh, working directly with foundations who have large piles of proposals. Yeah. Either to review the folks who just barely got cut, or their actual grant pools. Uh, for some programs that would make sense, right? Like if you're getting funding from Gates, I hope. Uh, I hope you're getting feedback, you, that you have an advisory committee or something, but that you've hopefully formalized your process for receiving feedback on your work. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that you have enough money that you can pay professionals to do it. Well, even some of our, some of the applications we get... You might even have a director of evaluation working for you. Right. Like we do not. Tacovis does not have that. But um, some of the applications that we get... The, we can tell from the application that the program itself is compelling. Usually one of the trustees actually knows the applicant and has had a couple of deep dive meetings with them. There's probably mm-hmm. been a site visit where appropriate. Um, and so the application can come in and not actually be that strong, but we'll still talk about how the application itself is not that strong in the meeting. But the board doesn't necessarily have interest in that kind of feedback, right? In, in, yes. in going through and doing an unfunded list style bit of feedback. And we have actually added on in a couple of occasions we have said, yes, we're going to approve this grant for 20 k for this thing. We're also giving you $5,000 to please go get some development <laughs> training. Well, yes. <laughs> I know there are many foundations that do this. And yeah, you should. You, yeah. You're not one. You're not. Uh, you're, it's a legal requirement. You can't be the only funder of any of these programs. No, no, no. It's and not even just about that. It's like so you, obviously really... you want them to be able to raise more money right, from right, other right, sources right, right. and to be better at it. Right, right. And you mentioned something interesting to me, is, and this has happened to me as well. I know the people, I think it's a really great idea, it has promise, right? But the, this proposal they put together is very bad. Yeah. Uh, and it is diff- that is, I think there are lots of funders who would like to be able to like, look, I want to fund it, but you. But also this needs to get... But help me out. Right? Yeah. And we would be, I think, the perfect group to work with on stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we're going to take this proposal, we're going to give you the, the we're going to take two months to, to improve it, and then maybe you get the funding, right? The, yeah. To the, the, to the extent we can get foundations to agree to partner with us and stuff like that, they move a little bit slower. Uh, I do think, though, eventually, towards our ultimate goal, the big, hairy, audacious goal of the unfunded list, yeah. is that we will one day review all of the proposals. Ever. 
If you write a proposal, we review it. Interesting. So it would almost be like the common app stopgap kind of thing. I don't think there will, for various reasons, I don't think there will ever be a common application. No, so I, instead, I don't think a common application. So instead of a common application, yeah. there will be a common review committee. Ah. Sometimes I call it the type O blood type of review <laughs> committees. Thank you for getting it without having me explain it. <laughs> for those of you at home who don't understand, the type the O type is, the, is the universal joke. recipient. Uh, you know, and there are so many universal people. Universal donor. Universal. The type donor. O is the universal. Anyone can have type O blood, or anyone can receive type O blood. Oh yeah, type O is the. So I guess we're the type AB negative of review committees. <laughs> is that right? I, now I'm, I think you might be incorrect. I'm not, neither of us doctors. I figured out. <laughs> I want the one. I mean the one that the, that everybody can the, the the blood type that can receive any any type of blood. Ah yes. Right, so that we can receive any kind of proposal, give good feedback to it. Yeah. This is because most foundations have like really narrow parameters. Yeah. A lot of people don't really understand that. The number of people who tell me like, well, we wouldn't be a good fit for you because X, Y, Z. Nope. Stop it. We can, we can review every proposal. Uh, there's one thing I know Unfundables can do, and that's give helpful and candid feedback to your grant proposal. It could be written on any issue from anywhere in the world. Any it doesn't, but they're all convinced that this is the day themselves. This funder is special, unique. We and if 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 you send me a proposal, yeah. and I literally don't. This never happened. I don't think it could. I literally don't have any reviewers yeah. who are capable of giving feedback to it. I would find them. There, in and then we would. there have been a couple where I've said I would have felt more comfortable reviewing this with this with X kind of expertise. Right, so like I think about my you as the individual reviewer, sure. Yeah. Like, any one of those proposals where you weren't one hundred percent comfortable was assigned to a bunch of other people. True, true, true. What I would say is, what I would say is, I could see the universe where you know my my office mate, uh, her foundation funds public health health work, mm -hmm. and so uh, I once reviewed I think Simprints. Yes, currently on the list. Currently on the list. Um, and they won the WeWork Creator Awards. They won the WeWork Creator Awards. But I was reviewing it and I realized there was stuff in there that I couldn't figure out if it was not correct, but like I couldn't figure out how to weight it. I didn't understand how to think about why they would prioritize that message over different messages. And so I actually would talk to my office mate about it because there were just pieces in there that didn't resonate for me. So I see the universe where, you know, you have a separate public health committee or you have a separate... Um, because that kind of insider expertise, if there's actual science being done and you have to sort of test the rigor of an experiment in a grant proposal, not like for NIH, but you know, still, that's a whole different conversation than I would necessarily feel comfortable evaluating. Uh, sure. I don't, again, I never, we never assign a proposal to an evaluator because we're going to get 100% of the feedback that we need from that one evaluator. Totally. Never. I never. Know. No, hasn't happened that, yet. It's never going to happen. Not evolution. deliberately designed differently. I know, differently but I think that's No, and we do. I have more or less. Uh, the committee has a third issue area experts, a third funders, and a third professional fundraisers. Yeah. Uh, and we do a, basically a third. And then I try, when I assign fundraisers, I try to make sure that they are fundraisers who have fundraised on that issue. Yeah. However, I believe very strongly in the power of perspective. And I think it can be very useful to hear from people who do not understand the work that you are doing. True. All that well. No, Here's that's really true. One of the reasons I really like having you as an evaluator is it does not matter to me how well you know the issue area. No matter what, if someone's trying to accomplish social change in the world, they would they they're gonna be better off 
if you read their proposal and give them the most helpful candid advice you can give. If it may not be a, like I said, it's not gonna be a panacea of advice. Sure, I, sure, I don't, sure, sure. I know, totally. I think it's impossible. It's never gonna happen that you're gonna be like, and here's all the funders you need, right? right and here's right, exactly right. how to make your program perfect. Yeah, yeah. That wouldn't, that's not, we're not ever gonna be able to do that. Right? Yeah. But uh, if I grow a committee big enough, right? I think in order to be able to review every proposal in the world, uh, I'm probably gonna need north of 10,000 evaluators. My guess right now is that there were about a million legitimate proposals written last year. Um, I'd probably have about 5 million scam garbage proposals. Right. Um, we would, I think, I'd have to come up with some way to like weed out the garbage, which isn't that hard. Um, I can do it just by looking at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I wouldn't be able to physically look at 5 million, right? I was going to say. There's going to be a way. As powerful uh, as you are. One right? of the things I've actually noticed, uh, as somebody who receives about a dozen garbage proposals a day, uh, they are borrowing language from each other. Interesting. Um, there's definitely going to be some ways with like a computer to, or an algorithm, right, to sort some of this stuff out. My God, the internet, it's going to change everything. Well, one of the things, and this, this, this gets people excited, this is why I like this as a vision for us. Uh, right now, I don't think there's a foundation in the world that could possibly have an open call for proposals that accepts proposals from Africa. Uh, certainly not the entire continent. But probably not even a single country. Like you, if you were to say, like, or if you're Ugandan and you've written a grant proposal, please send it to us. We're giving grants. Yeah. Right? You wouldn't be able to do it. You would receive far too many proposals. 99% of them would be uh, uh, some sort of scam. Well, and this is leaving aside the IRS issues, right? Yeah, that. assuming you could solve that too. Or, yeah. or you don't care about the... You can give money to anybody you want if you don't care about the tax benefits. Or not actually accurate. If I, I can, I, if I give you a suitcase full of cash, right? You could do that uh, if you. There's if ways. That person were affiliated with a terrorist organization, and that the list of organizations that are terrorist organizations are not there are terrorist issues. organizations. That that gets becomes its own problem. There, there. The the point is, you couldn't do it. Yes. Uh, however, I don't have a doubt in my mind that there's a Ugandan right now with a great idea and a great grant proposal. Yeah. No, that's true. Every single country in Africa probably has multiple fantastic proposals for improving mm-hmm. their communities possibly even like cures to cancer and things of that sort yeah uh in fact it's very large continent very likely that that's the case with no one seriously reading or sorting or looking through all of this we are missing out on that stuff agreed uh and so that's a big part and like not for nothing forget africa right india philippines china yeah um uh, and then the fact that right the it is a I mean, this is Jonah's whole dream. It's a Jonah Whitcamper, co-founder of Nexus. He should learn how to give feedback to a grant proposal. I don't think he'll be able to. I don't think he'll be able to read all of them. No. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, but uh, certainly he knows a lot of the folks that are writing uh, decent proposals, and the, the, there's no way for that Ugandan with a good grant proposal and a good idea right. to get his to get his stuff thought uh, right. uh, considered. Um, and um, there's probably a lot of people out there that don't even pursue it because they know how hard it would be to get it pursued. There's Americans who wouldn't even think about running a grant oh, because yeah, they think that's too difficult. Yeah. No, totally. uh, let alone if you're from a country where that, that, that has no, none of its own. Well, I don't mean to pick on Uganda. It's a, a fine country. It is. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a worse off. Um, th- th- it happens to be the country that I received the most garbage grant proposals from. Mm. Um, I, used to, I like to joke that... Um, if you have a proposal and you're Ugandan, you, it's by law, you're required to send it to Dave. <laughs> it's a Ugandan national law or whatever. It's the only thing that explains why I keep getting... <laughs> Do you get a lot of unsolicited proposals just emailed to you? We don't. We don't. But we... I don't mean we... I'm not asking a, a 
plural. I'm Mary Galetti. No. They find my personal Gmail address. No. And they email me proposals. No. Dear sir. No. No. I really don't. How am I? You are a I'm on a list. Bird, sir. On a list somewhere. You really are. But you're also you're much more public facing than I am. A couple times I've convinced these people to to pay the hundred dollar fee and submit a proposal to the unfunded list. That's how you can tell they're legitimate. We have reviewed two proposals from Africa, uh, but I don't like charging a hundred dollars. Makes sense to me for an American grant writer, but in Africa, that's a, the, the, uh, makes a lot less sense. Mm-hmm. Some of them can afford it. Obviously, they have. They, we've received some, but mm-hmm. uh, towards our goal of reading all of them, uh, like you were saying before, partnering with uh, nonprofits that have grantees that are early stage, mm-hmm. right? That need other funding. That still need to figure it out, uh, and also uh, foundations that receive way too many proposals. And who are passing on good ones because of capacity issues, which well, is most of your large, well-known programs. Even I'm just thinking about, like, you know, Jacobus has given the unfunded list a grant, and could there have been a rider in the grant? And I'm, this is not intended to be backward-looking, but could there have been a rider in the grant? It's good, because I have spent that. I know you have. Uh, in no, I, still, I actually do. I still have some of it. And we were excited about <laughs> grant money is to be spent. That's the point of grant money. Um, no, but could there have been a bit in there that said, uh, you know, and we're going to, we can send you five of our grantee proposals mm-hmm. or five of our applicants, uh, submit the, have them submitted to the unfunded list and maybe have the fee waived or, or not, or, you know, can they, a subsidized fee or something to make sure that they're still skin in the game? I don't know, but, um, and if the, the fee was designed, uh, assuming that they are the applicants, yeah, uh, if it, they were coming in batches from foundations, I'm going to have to rethink how that works yeah I mean uh, I, I don't intend to brainstorm this right now but yeah no but I, it, it's nice to hear you say that. that is absolutely like the top priority for us moving forward yeah. especially towards our goal of getting like a lot more proposals yeah. uh, it probably takes me just as long to convince the foundation to send me all their proposals as it would to convince a nonprofit to send me one so um, in terms of my time mm-hmm. um, no, and the uh, and increasingly they are interested in working with others but they get they're all so niche and they're so strategic and lots of times there's a board that's very like they wants to see things done a certain way yeah. I am rarely a certain way uh, yeah. uh, but you know it'll be it'll happen right yeah, here's, yeah. here's the one thing I know that the first person to hand me all of their unfunded proposals we're gonna be enormously helpful to those enormous proposals and there's gonna be like lots of actual tangible stuff that goes forward yeah. Um, the, um, I would actually, I, part of the other reason I would be interested in it is I would be interested in what, um, what you or the committee would glean about our strategy from that grouping, because there are things that make inherent sense to us that probably wouldn't otherwise, or things that a discussion we've had on the board level is what are the things we've been doing for the last four or five years that we haven't even noticed we've been doing? That's very interesting. I haven't even thought about that. I was assuming that it would just be that we would give feedback to their I, grantees. I, so was I. This once we a, started doing that, we yeah. would learn, like if we were giving the same feedback to all of your grantees, we might learn, we might mention that to you. You're like, hey, <laughs> by the way, you're doing a funny thing. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Or, or you give me your stated goals, like we're looking to see our groups, right? And especially yeah. as we... Because I really do increasingly think you shouldn't just send us one proposal. You should be sending us a proposal every single time we have a round. Hmm. So, I mean, the right now, you can get feedback from ex, from a dozen experts twice a year for $200 a year. That is how the finalist works. Yeah. And there are people out there who are like, eh. <laughs> no. Yeah. I have, that's too expensive or like, I, who knows, right? Right. Um, but the, you know, if you were to go to, 
uh, Deloitte and ask for the same thing. They'll do it. 50K, at least. Probably at least, yeah. Um, I actually don't even tell people that because they usually don't believe me, right? That I'm giving a hundred dollars, I'm giving a fifty thousand dollars service for a hundred bucks. But I think it probably is what I'm doing. Um, uh, okay. Uh, those who have been listening uh, this long probably can tell you and I know each other pretty well. A little bit. Have known each other for a while. Yeah. Um, do you remember uh, when and how we met? Spoiler alert: I do remember. I also uh, remember. So, hold on. Yeah, it's up. We're going to go back to that question. Somebody's walking by David. David she's, talking about, she's talking about feedback. Did you hear that? <laughs> David Jaffe, you should know that I knew a guy in high school named David Jaffe, which we already discussed. And Dave informed me of how common a name it was. But, you know. This is not the David Jaffe you went to high school with. He is from D.C. Neat. <laughs> uh, okay, she's gone past. Uh, what was right. the. Uh, oh, yeah. Do I remember how. Uh, do you remember met? how you and I met? Uh, did you and I meet at the White House in 2010 at the Next Gen Leaders? That is very close to the correct answer. Oh, do we meet the night before? Oh, we met at the State Department! We met at the State Department in the diplomatic receiving rooms. We met at the State Department the day before the... It wasn't called Nexus then, it was the Next Gen White Gen House Leaders. Next Gen Leader. The White House something on Next Gen with, ha- with Howie Buffett and Matt Tranchin. Yeah, and Howie's last day at... Uh, at the White House in the Office of Social Innovation was that day. Was it really? It hmm. was. Um, interesting. Uh, but the day before, uh, it was a tour of the State Department. Do you know? Who, do you remember who gave us our tour? Uh, the there was a, so there was a woman who showed us the seventh floor. Right, the diplomatic receiving rooms. But the other person who gave us the tour was it Steve Wozniak? Yes. Who was a guest on season one of Open Door Philanthropy? Uh, also, interestingly, on the tour is that uh, there were uh, you and I met, uh, but also um, uh, Lisa and Ian met, and they are now married. That's right. I actually, it, it's Jason Franklin's and my fault because the at the end of the end, at the end of the uh, was he on that trip? To, was he, he on was. that? And at the end of the event at the White House, a big group of people went to Old Ebbets and. Uh, Liesl and Ian and Jason and I I invited Liesl and Jason invited Ian we ended up going to get calamari before meeting up at the you know cocktail reception afterwards and Liesl and Ian started hanging out much more significantly after that and then they got married um neat yeah <laughs> um so uh that wasn't uh, like I mentioned it wasn't called Nexus then yeah. arguably though that was the the uh, to one of the first next events. I can't remember if we had gone to. There was that smaller thing at the UN. No, the I believe that was after. Was yeah, so this was this was the, the first, semester. really the first Nexus um, type of thing. Uh, you and I have both been involved uh, with Nexus ever since then. Yeah. Uh, this is a long time now. I believe was that 2010. Yeah, it was because um, yeah. Uh, so that's that's a that's a good long while. Yeah. So that event was not officially a Nexus event, but it was the same group, a lot of the same organizers, arguably the first uh, Nexus event. You and I have been involved with Nexus ever since. Yeah. They are across the hall from us right now. They are. Um, you know, what is it? Uh, can you and uh, a lot of regular listeners to the podcast know a decent amount about Nexus. Um, what is it? Um, you know, why have you been uh, involved for as long as you have? Um, what is it that being a member of Nexus uh, helps you with? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it has to do, Rachel, one of the co-founders, Rachel Cohen, Gerald and I um, shared an office for 
several years actually, and that's a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. But I think the other piece of it is that, you know, as I said earlier, most of my professional learning about the practice of philanthropy came from the staff side. And so I hung out a lot with senior program officers, with vice presidents, with uh, CEOs of foundations. Nexus is much more, I guess, the definition of philanthropists, right? They're generally young people, though not always, who are thinking about how they want to give their money away and how they would like to theoretically give it away well. And you have social change that they want to accomplish. And have social change that they want to accomplish to fit Dave's beautiful framework. And two things are true. The first is that many of them are very young on their journey of figuring out how they want to do this. And so they ask really interesting questions that mm. cause me to question my own practice, right? It's when you, when you meet a novice and the novice asks you a banal question, but you struggle to answer it. It gives you your own reflection. Uh, the other piece of it is you know, Tacovis does not have significant staff. Tacovis has me in the family office. And so being with folks who are doing this in a more unstaffed way, I actually find really insightful. Not having that community feels really helpful. I don't think, um, yeah, I, I would cut after the, I don't think David Jaffe is Oh, <laughs> uh, that's fine. But you would say, uh, you would say being around peers, people in the same position as you, um, somewhat helpful or not for me that's a major part of it growing up in Maine there were very very few of my neighbors and the kids going to public school in Maine with me uh, on the board of their family foundation I didn't get to have conversations with peers about that yeah yeah I think that's real I think it it is helpful I think some of the contexts though are wildly different, right? When you're, from, from my personal experience, when you're talking about- Well, no one's married. No one's married, but also like, we are not, you know, going back to your opening gambit about where a person's from tells you a lot about what they come to the world with. You know, we are not a high New York finance family. We are not a mm -hmm. super public family. We are not, uh, we don't have our name everywhere in large part by design. I, no judgment on that, just it's it's been a, a thing in our yes. family. And so for a lot of folks in the Nexus community, they do think about their public-facing persona in this very intentional way, and, and that is a big piece of how they experience the world, and that is not for us. And so in some cases, that has been... Yes. The celebrity aspect has been hard to not reconcile, but uh, it, it's it's been interesting to reflect with them on their experience given the context of their celebrity. Um, yes, I find that interesting as well. And I, I also it very much resonated uh, with me. Um, the questions you hear from people who are earlier on in their career, especially in this field, a field that doesn't always even consider itself a field. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, have these people come in and start asking these questions and stuff is very, is very interesting. Um, do you, uh, how, uh, a lot of the folks who come, Nexus is a, uh, solicitation free space. Right. Right. Uh, however, lots of the, a large portion of the people there are, uh, fundraisers. Yeah. Uh, I think. Um, you should not go to, I mean, you should definitely should not go to Texas and ask people for money directly there in the conference, right? right. But I do think even the organizers who wrote the, the, the no, solicitating, no solicitation rule. And you and I were there when it was written and we pushed for right. it. Would agree, would, would agree though that we do, we would like to see members of the community funding projects from other members of the community. Yeah. Uh, just that, that, that's, that, that, um, that it should be more organic. In particular, like if you're a speaker, you don't make a you don't ask for money at the end of the speak yeah. uh, at the end of the speech, right? Like yeah. you, you make you make organic relationships that then turn into things, right. which it certainly has. Uh, I have funded people who I've met there. People I've met there have funded 
projects I've worked on. We have funded. As my question is, have you have you met people that you funded there? You, I mean, more than you, but also you. Generally speaking, I think it's useful for people to know how I fundraise. Uh, but unless you are very similar to me, you're probably not going to want to use the same tactics. <laughs> Um, is there, am I the only person you ever met at Nexus that you ended up giving a grant to? No. Uh, we funded... You um, need to name names if you want to. That's great, but... No, we funded a few projects out of Nexus. Some of them a little bit by accident. Uh, some of them, we went looking for them. You know, the, the funny thing about the way Jacobus approaches philanthropy is that, um... It's, it, we think about it in a much more fit and start kind of way. So certainly before I had the baby, you know, I would be at seven or eight conferences a year. I would do a huge amount of relationship building in those contexts. I would want to know who people were excited about. I would want to know where projects and programs were. I would want to know how they were working um, and what that meant in the context of the field and the social change they were trying to make. Um, I find Nexus is really good for that. I have totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> uh, when there are uh, so people come to uh, people come to Nexus. Some of them come to Nexus probably thinking that Tacovis is a possible funder for them. Yeah, I know for a fact that this is true. Yeah, I know for a fact it's. Uh, sometimes people reach out to me to ask about how to approach <laughs> Tacovis. <laughs> um, rarely. Um, you get you get so much more outreach than I do. I find this fascinating. Uh, we, in fact, uh, on the uh, current, I'm gonna I'll uh, blow him up a little bit because I, I don't think he would mind. But on the current unfunded list uh, is uh, Transfer Nation. Yeah. Um, Samir, he was at Nexus US last week. Yeah. And afterwards, he said, you know, I was looking to, I was really trying to connect with Mary Galetti from Tacovis. I see on LinkedIn that you are connected. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, do you know what I mean? And it is, it is, I have a very long list of people like I eventually want to connect. I have a process for doing this. Yeah. Uh, double opt-in, for yeah. instance. Uh, so like if you, at some point I might uh, end up uh, connecting with him. Yeah. You read a few proposals, the proposal that did not make the list. He then got feedback from us and submitted a better proposal, which, and then did make the list. And that's, that's the process that you want, right? Uh, yes, that's exactly, that's what, that's what, in fact, everybody who's on the, current list uh, is there on their at least their second proposal yeah. uh, and uh, with all of them I thought it was, it, it was I was actually very disappointed with their first proposal <laughs> Delta uh, matters man, Delta matters well it's just they're, you know people can be good at a lot of things yeah. no one's good at everything yeah. and grant writing is very rarely on that list of things that you're good at Yeah. Uh, and in fact I found people who are good at it are rarely good at anything else yeah uh, and so um, that makes the whole this, this whole process quite quite tricky because um, some of these folks are excellent with their regular writing when they write about their program mm -hmm. their website copy and stuff is very very good mm -hmm. uh, but then when it, because they don't know what they're doing they don't know what the person's looking for. They don't. Yeah, it's so awkward. Uh, yeah, it, I, I it's not a very natural language. Yeah, uh, like I'm trying to write academically now, and I'm and I'm a capable and competent writer, but writing academically, I I am just garbage. It's very good. Is a, a very good comparison, right? And, uh, you know, and uh, it should be like some people might be very good at writing poems, but not essays. Yeah. Um, it should be pretty simple for us to understand. Um, and um, uh, I would love a world where we there was no format for the proposal. They just Please write, explain your program in the way that you want, right? I mean, I think that's the uh, point. It would be better that's writing. What but... most people are trying to do, but they just don't do it well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, the shift to like decks. 
Yeah. Uh, um, some decks are better than others. Any people listening, please don't send me a deck. I hate decks. The problem is it's too easy for you to leave stuff out that yeah. I need to know. Yeah. Uh, if you're writing a deck that actually really does have all the information I need to know, yeah. A, you've done a really good job with your deck. Uh, and B, and like, but, but certainly do not send uh, something that a lot of folks don't understand. Don't send decks to people who have a process for what you're supposed to send. Right. <laughs> Thanks. They don't care how much you spent on it or what, or nope. no, they have, they have a process for what you're supposed to send for a reason. I know yep. it's frustrating. Um, so, um, these folks, uh, who come to Nexus, uh, and who think Coast might be a good fit, yeah. uh, how, how would you, what are they, what should they do there at the, they see you across the dining area or whatever, right? You're talking to Dave. He's wildly gesticulating or whatnot. Maybe you even know Dave, right? Uh, or whatnot. How do you, how, how do you want them to approach you at the summit or do you not want them to, or how do you want them to behave? If they've identified Tacovis and know who you are, but haven't met you yet, and they're at the same event as you. Yeah, I have to think about that for a minute. And the reason I have to think about it is um, it's a tough question to answer. Actually. It's a tough question to answer. It's also for me in the last two years, year and a half. Um, you know, I haven't been able to get to a lot of conferences. We are in a real period of strategic reflection and change. In the foundation and I have been you know as a human wildly burned out and so just tired and, and struggled with a lot of extrovert energy I just don't have much of it right now and the reason I'm sharing all of that is just been I have been surprised at how much harder it feels to do my job in a way that feels respectful of people that we would want to fund because mm -hmm. they don't have the emotional energy to give them so when you're saying how would when you ask the question, how would you like them to approach you? I'm like, I wouldn't. But that's inc incredibly the wrong answer, right? It's not, it's not, oh, yeah, it's, really it's not appropriate, it's not professional. Funders are people. And sometimes they, like, the, the, they could be having a bad day. Yeah. Uh, right? Or they could just be overly stressed, right? And I think, you know, another thing, uh, it is, uh, it's taxing to be approached like that. Um, Sometimes you just want to catch up with your colleagues you haven't seen in six months. Right. Which at Nexus is very likely what you're what you're doing right. when, they, when right. they when they come up and interview. Uh, at the same time, no, uh, you know, a couple of things. A, you have social change you want to accomplish in the world. I do. So it's uh, irresponsible. And if there's someone out there who indeed is accomplishing that social right. change in the then world, you are not doing a very good job of being a philanthropist if you true. if you don't speak if you don't let if you if there's no way for these people to approach you. Right. Um, uh, so um, I think very important. Uh, for people to remember, right? Uh, when you go to an event, right? Lots of times they go to these events for the very specific m reason of meeting a list of people who are funders. Yeah. Nexus gives a you. You're allowed to look at the pathable beforehand. Right, right, right. See everybody who's coming. Yeah. See if they're at a foundation. They're you can do all of your research very clearly. A lot of people do come into these things and do that. Yeah. I think it is essential for them to remember that you know even though they do need they need this money. Yeah. They are making. They are themselves not getting paid enough. Yeah. There's a bunch of people on the team not getting paid enough. Yeah. There's a bunch of people who aren't even on their team at all because they can't afford to, to even start hiring yeah, them. And the result yeah. of that is that there are people in the world suffering that they could help. Yeah. Uh, and so they need this. They, they, when I buy, we're using the real definition of the word need. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about them needing money, not like I need to take a nap. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you might need to take a nap. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, but I'm, I'm trying. This, I need, I need a third I, cup of coffee, right? This is why I struggled with your question. I, I, I actually, you couldn't see this, dear listeners, but I actually felt moral struggle in my face because, on the one hand, 
Well, it's hard. I think when you're in that, just like I was saying, these folks are focused on the fact that they need money. Yeah. And it's hard for them to also focus on the fact that you are an individual person with feelings and desires and maybe you're not having the best day of your life right now. Yeah. Right? And maybe maybe nine people have already asked you for money. Yeah. And they did it pretty awkwardly. Yeah. <laughs> and you coming in there to be the 10th. So I think there's a few things. One, uh, it could go poorly. I mean, when you, you, when you go up to a conference and right, they could, the funders uh, often have to deal with this. Yeah. Especially, you know, I find, uh, so Nexus does not put your organization on the name tag. Yeah. One of my favorite things about going to Nexus. Uh, for a while, when I went to conferences, Dave Moss, Moss Family Foundation. Right. It's the worst. Yeah. It's the worst. It is. You don't ever go to a conference with that. Or, or, honestly, if you're listening in as a fundraiser, try going to a conference that way. Register as your name, and the blank name, foundation. Yeah. Right? And see what it's like yeah. to have every single person ask you the same questions. You get super funny, though. Everybody, you, you suddenly become very, well, you're already very attractive and funny. But, <laughs> but no, like, suddenly. My, 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 my go-to funny answer now, so that often uh, what they mean is, uh, will your foundation give me a grant? Yep. Uh, and what they say is, tell me, what does the Moss Family Foundation focus on? Yep. Right? I yeah. know what it means. Can I have money? Yeah. Right? But uh, tell me, what does the Moss Family Foundation focus on? And my new, that's the, probably the number one question I get. Yeah. Uh, and I, my joke used to be, well, thank you for your interest. I had a business card. Yeah, just yeah, said, yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. for your interest. And then I would stop, then I, would, I wouldn't tell them, just thank you for your interest. Now I say, uh, oh, you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that good? It feel free good. to feel free to adopt. Oh, you don't need to. That's not for you to. That's not for you to worry about. <laughs> no, and I'm doing them a favor. They do not want to be involved in any sort of Moss family business. <laughs> <laughs> they think they do, but trust me, you don't. The reality is, is we're funding the nonprofit that I founded. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's pretty much it. You really do not need to worry about it. Yeah. Um, but, but you um, can submit an application to the unfunded list. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I can handle this. The, I can handle this conversation, right? But the, the, yeah. and I understand why they, they, they guys, Moss funded. I might, I need money. Yeah. I'm at this conference for yeah. a specific reason because I'm trying to meet yeah. donors to my program. Uh, and oftentimes, I was at that conference because I was trying to find new programs that I might work. Yeah. One of the things about me is I, bought, I, I usually work at a nonprofit that's trying to partner with nonprofits. Yeah. And I'm also an active funder, which, in some ways, is kind of a. Well, so I have a, I have kind a, of unfair to the people I'm trying to approach, right? Because I'm selling and I have, right. I might be able to give to them, but whatever. So Life's I, not fair. I have a friend who's a runs a VC in India, and I I asked him actually. We had lunch, and I asked him how he deals with um, sort of the constant pitching because you know if if you run into a VC, it's the same thing, right? VC funding and foundation funding are very, very similar in terms of the power dynamics, in terms of the culture of pitching, the culture of asking, like that's, that's all really present. So I was like, how do you deal with it? And he was like, honestly, um, because most of his stuff is local to a particular city, so he can do this, but I've been trying to think about what it would look like in my own practice. Mm -hmm. He's like, I tell everybody I'm not having this conversation now. Every Thursday from nine to noon, I will take whatever meeting in half an hour or 15 minute blocks. Here's where you click to schedule. I will be at this place. You're coming to me, but I will I be like here. That. You have 15 minutes. We can have the conversation and that's, that's it. I like that. No, that I could really work at, like that could it. work at conferences. I really they, like Listen, it. I'm at this conference right now. Yeah. Uh, but I have office hours every week. Yeah. And you want to, you want to tell me about your program? I will seriously consider it. Here yeah. you go. I think that's very smart. I've, I've really not heard of anyone who does that. I like that. I um, really like it. Uh, I like that quite a bit. 
I realize um, it can seem a little bit aggressive, but it would also help me be more present in the places I want to be present without having to think through, I have to have another hour and a half coffee to hear about a program that probably I could tell you in the first five minutes we wouldn't fund. And, and it's not the best. It's They don't want to, the ideal situation for them is not to be pitching there you know, on the floor of the... Of the yeah, no, right? nobody wants that. It's not good for anybody. Mm-hmm. No. Um, I mean, you're just on, you're far less likely. You've probably heard several. You, you might not remember it at all afterwards, right? Oftentimes, I come home from conferences and I'm looking at a card and I have no idea who no, this... No, yeah. Incre- like, I, my memory is pretty solid, uh, but in, in, I've noticed as I'm getting older, I, there's always two or three cards in the pile and I'm just like, I don't... Yeah. I don't know what that company is. I don't know what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for all I know, I loved it at the time. Uh, but these things are, um, especially... Now, after eight years of, of going to Nexus, right, and a lot of the other conferences I go to, I've been before as well. So a lot of it is catching up with people who you only ever see at that conference, yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, also trying to meet new people. It can be, you know, it, it can be quite overwhelming. Yeah. Um, the uh, to um, uh, to finish that topic, yeah. uh, Because I met you at Nexus, and you did find me eventually. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, how I think. That happened. First of all, it was several organizations ago. Yeah. Uh, and you have given grants uh, to support my work at, I believe, three organizations now. Yeah. I think you have funded more than that in terms of organizations where I worked, but it might not have been specifically like, this is to fund what Dave is doing. Mm. Like, I, I, th- I believe you were supportive of Atlas Core, but I don't think that they were like... I was supportive of Atlas Core, but not while you were there. Okay. We've given them a grant, but not while you were there. But you're a big part of why I know what I know about it. <laughs> All right, good. You hear that? Atlas Core? <laughs> sorry, like it's maybe true. be nicer to me. No, they're very. They're all very nice to they me. They are super wonderful. No, and whenever I Scott I, is um, a gentleman and a even star. though I do not, and that's why I think it's an interesting. Even though I do not work there anymore, like in some ways I still work there, right? Yeah. The, the, some I was in partnerships there. Mm-hmm. Some of the relationships I have are still relationships there. I still. Mm-hmm play an active role in stewarding and cultivating them because that's the sector we work in. It would yeah. be irresponsible. It wouldn't be helpful to the goal, the social change I want to see in the world <laughs> to not do that. Um, well, and you're proud of your work there. You placed a lot of incredible people and a lot of incredible mm-hmm. organizations to mutual benefit. It was pretty good. Uh, so, uh, uh, but uh, when we first met, you did not fund me. I did not ask you for money no. during that first meeting. No. I remember at the end of the State Department tour, they asked us for money. They did. Uh, and I, I told her that was ridiculous. I remember I used the word ridiculous. Said, Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> 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 it was one of the like least talk I hadn't been asked for money that many times at that point in my life but like it was just it like, was hilarious look at all this priceless stuff we own <laughs> and if you want to give us a check for some money um, and just I, was just I remember I know I, and I try to be helpful as well I always try to be helpful if I say no to give something yeah. I don't think any of us are going to give you money but like you know, I, I do think there are donors interested in historical pr- preservation um, they're probably not going to be in this generation. Like, um, I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, giving VIP tours of the, of the, uh, and then ending with an ask for money is the right way to preserve these artifacts. In fairness, there were also cocktails. Were we giving? There were, yeah, there was. Surprised I don't remember that. There was wine and beer. <laughs> there was were wine and beer them? and snacks and we went out on the terrace. Mm. Um, well, I, uh, it was just, uh, it was a, I didn't expect that asked to come. It was no, a, yeah, a, it was. A, it it was, was somewhat surprised, and I often react that way when I get an ass I don't expect. I mean, I have to tell you. So my husband was on his way back from Afghanistan during that trip, and so I wasn't sure if I'd actually be able to make it to the White House meeting because I thought I was going to have to be in Kansas to meet my husband coming home from Afghanistan. 
and then they got delayed a couple of days so it all worked out and I say that only because that whole set of four or five days was so surreal mm. you know like by starting by coming, I can only imagine. coming to the White House going to the diplomatic procedure surreal for me that was my first time in the White House yeah it was mine as well it was just <laughs> deeply and then to get go to Kansas and, and meet um meet a group coming back from Afghanistan that's where he comes back to Kansas yeah that's for yes for reasons that's where they went back to um, okay and so th- that fine was place to come back to and so <laughs> just we, as good a place as any I suppose uh, and meeting you is <laughs> a defining moment at that time uh, but you, but my I did not uh, I would say I didn't well I was aware everybody on the tour probably had uh, philanthropy they could give everybody at uh, the White House very much intentionally not why I was going there yeah. uh, I was you know I was earlier in my career I figured this was going to be if I was lucky people that might be in my network for a very long time yeah. that was my main focus I'm trying to make right, let's let's go here and be, make lifelong friends right uh, I put my I, I think one of the reasons why Howie Buffett won't ever forget who I am is because I put my foot behind my head for him <laughs> Um, that, that, that there's, a a lot of, there's a lot of people who who know who I am because that's true. Uh, that's true. I don't do it anymore, actually. No, because you, your back's been bothering you for a while. Well, my back, my back's fine now because I haven't done that in a few years. No, I'm good. I think it's possible that was the problem. <laughs> there are pictures on the internet that one can access. I uh, am capable of balancing on my left leg with my right foot all the way behind my head. It's true. I've seen it on multiple occasions. And I've done it to raise money. Yeah. We raised one hundred and eighty dollars. And we, I was just betting people that I could do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, here's, but, a, here's a piece of advice. When it comes to Dave Moss telling you he can do something, do not bet against him. Yeah. I don't. I'm not betting unless I know I'm going to win. Yeah. The, uh, not a gambling man. <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh, we had a nice nexus. Uh, and then I think I saw you again up in New York at the, there was a Council on Foundations thing led by Rebecca Richards. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Governance training, which is where I met George for the yeah. first time. Both of you were there. Uh, and again, and I didn't ask you for money there in that meeting. It didn't no. even occur to me to ask you for money there in that meeting. I was the development director at a nonprofit. Yeah. Um, but I was there to like learn more about the philanthropy, the, the philanthropy and how things worked. And, yeah. and again, uh, because this was the next gen group at the Council on Foundations, I figured, you know, this, the people I'm building, there's very, uh, very, I was much more of an intentional networker back then. Yeah. Right now, quite frankly, I'd be fine if I don't meet anybody else ever again. <laughs> I think I already know them. Yeah. If I don't already know you, I'm just wondering, like, what have you been doing where have you been <laughs> well, I'm just kidding I'm just kidding if you're listening to this I'd love to meet you why don't you send me an email and David? if you're 25 you get special dispensation because mm-hmm. you know you're well and I knew a very much uh, a value of mine at the time was to become more powerful and influential and I used to I, I regularly write down the list of my like what are the most what are the most uh, important values to you this yeah. week uh, I try to do it every week I'm not really getting into it every week uh, but often being powerful and influential is on my list, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to make decisions that because I, I believe I'm a good person and the more influential I am, the more good the world will be. Um, and I think to far too many people who are good people mm-hmm. intentionally avoid power and influence. They think of them as negative and untoward things. Uh, but if you have social change you want to accomplish in the world, you'll accomplish it more and faster if you are better networked and more influential. True. Uh, and so that you was very much, that was very much my goal. And I remember during that session, I forget exactly uh, what happened, but you said something along the lines of, uh, you were in fact telling, talking about how you like to be approached. Uh, and you said like, and you said something along the lines of, 
I just like for them to be upfront about it. Oh, yeah, and, no, that's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, don't, be, don't try to be my friend if you don't want to be my friend. Right? Yeah. No, and I, uh, but, uh, but also, I think you were also saying that like, you can be both. Yeah. But like when it comes time to like the don't, sh- don't these are two different conversations. Yeah. Um, right? Don't try to like snake them in together. Say like, do you mind if we have a development conversation for a moment? Yeah. Right? Because uh, that, way, that way I'm clear on what hat I'm wearing, you're clear on what hat you're wearing, or mm-hmm. these expectations are really are really clear it just it's it's much more comfortable and at the uh, at Naira that I was fundraising for at the time we didn't get a whole lot of like family foundation funding um, I didn't really see but the you know at that one uh, when I was talking to George he seemed someone interested in the work yeah. again I didn't ask George for money I was just telling him like the, I talked about the campaign we were working on yeah. probably the mosquito because I had just um, yeah. defeated the mosquito Google Dave Moss mosquito if you want to learn something interesting about uh, one of the more successful campaigns I did once, um, uh, and I uh, and uh, you know I remember I um, I got it into my head and I re- I had thought that um, we would not get a we would I didn't think to go if this was a fit something made me think that perhaps it was also I just heard you say how you wanted to be approached so uh, I don't think I did it up in New York but the, you know the next time I said to, I think I said let's have breakfast I I would I'm fundraising I would like to have a development conversation yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember we got the we got a grant. I don't remember the exact amount, smaller grant, uh, to go to uh, Austin for South by Southwest in 2010. Yeah. Where and George came yeah. and we set the Guinness World Record for the most number of consenting adults paddled in one place in one week. In, in order to raise awareness and. Stop it was an anti corporal punishment campaign. Right. And there was a Texas passed a bill. Uh, New Mexico passed a bill that week. Banning corporal punishment. Yeah, in schools especially. In, yeah, the, the only place it's legal is in schools. Right. I, I don't. I don't clarify that because it's the only place you can legally hit children. School, <laughs> public school, where they're forced to be against their will. <laughs> and you said not all. Not all students are forced to go to school against their will. All students who get paddled at school are. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people correct like not all students don't want to be there. Like the ones that are getting hit by their teachers. They don't want to be there. Right. <laughs> I'm, I don't know everything. <laughs> but I know that, yeah. Uh, and we got, we did change the bill uh, passed the following month in Texas to yeah. go from opt out to yeah. opt in. So now you need to actually, you need parental permission. And, and by st- the way, stuff like that, just for people who are funders or even uh, people who are on the development side of things, like grants like that are some of our favorites and a lot of foundations favorites because they're actually relatively small a fun story to tell, huge, huge upside for impact, right? Mm-hmm. Like lots of publicity. We had a lot of press. We were in like twenty different national news stories that week. A lot of legis- a lot of legislation came out of it, or a lot of at least checking in on regulation and legislation came out of it. Like a lot of good stuff came out of it. Um, and it, it is a story that we tell and find delightful. Now it's worth saying also that half the family is from Texas and so it's a th- their public school experience. Well, it was quite meaning. I know it was quite meaningful for George. It was very meaningful. Uh, for George, George testified for the Texas Education uh, Authority. He did, uh, but just for the record, sometimes it's a small. As much as I'm, I will sing the song of general operating support all the live long day. Sometimes these small sort of. Mm-hmm. Hilarious bets are are actually hugely important. Well, and uh, I would say that the the grant made it possible for us to participate in that campaign. Um, it it uh, wouldn't have covered everything. Yeah, we uh, partnered with the, we had a coalition of at least twelve anti corporal punishment groups, and also partnered with Mark Echo. Yeah, uh, he covered the cost of the stunt. Yeah, getting into the Guinness World Record was very good for his brand and everything. Right, but also great awareness for us. Every partner had a role to play in that. Mark did to also testify uh, for the committee, which was 
kind of a kind of a shit show because of how famous he is, right? Also, New Jersey billionaire comes to Texas to to testify. But but credit where credit's due. Where did you meet Mark Echo? As we talk about at why, Nexus, uh, yes. at Nexus, as yeah, we talk about true. like why you come to these yeah, things, and yeah. that stuff happened organically. I didn't ask him for money first. I started, I said we work on the same issue. Yeah. And he, he uh, hooked me up with this. And he never actually gave us money. We just, we were able to partner with him on that. Yeah. Got like, hey, I can bring, I can pay my own airfare. I can come. Actually, I think they might have paid for my ticket, but um, uh, that's, that detail's not that important. They didn't pay for too much. Uh, they were doing their work. We, we were able to bring uh, issue expertise. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I knew everything about, they, they knew they didn't like it. Yeah. I knew like, I mean, there's a hundred years of science, of social science behind corporate punishment showing it. Yeah. Uh, which made it, which is why we were able to, cause there were a lot of questions at that booth. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that it's happening. Uh, so we were able to leverage partnership very well, which I believe, um, is a, is a big part of why the grant was successful. Yeah. I remember writing the report. And what we were able to do with the money you gave us, yeah. I was just—I remember thinking like they're not going to believe we did this much. <laughs> <laughs> like, it really wasn't that big of a of a grant. I and that has uh, been. I think it was like five or ten k. Yeah, something like not that. Not much. Uh, and um, I think that's that's like really important. Impress the hell out of them on your first grant. Yeah. Don't lie about what you're doing. No. Work ex- Just work harder. Yeah. You have to in order to do this stuff. Work harder than everybody else. That's uh, it. Makes it into almost all the feedback reports I send. I'm like, you just, like, you have to be working harder than everybody else. (laughs) Martin Luther King was working harder than everybody else. It's true. I also... And not for nothing, Martin Luther was working harder than everybody (laughs) else. You only have one thesis, that's not enough. You need 94. 90, was there 94? There was 95 thesis. 95? 95 thesis. I always think it's 99, but that's because of Jay-Z, right? Right. No. (laughs) 99 thesis. That's funny. (laughs) Right. He has four more problems than Martin Luther. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good joke. I gotta work a wordsmith that. Yeah. But there's a joke in there. There is, because it's theses versus problems. What's the difference between Martin Luther and Jay Z? He has four more problems. Four four problems. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. You're gonna have to work on it. It works pretty no, good. No. We'll see. Okay. If you're listening and you like that joke, <laughs> please send me an email so I can forward it to Mary. Um I think we've had a very good conversation so far. Uh, I just want to wrap up a little bit. We got that original grant uh, back in the Naira days. Uh, I uh, kept up uh, uh, with you and George, mostly as friends. Uh, every now and then, I'm doing something that I want support from the Tacovas Foundation from. Yeah. And I try to remember what you told everyone in that room to do, right? Make it very clear, like, I'd like to talk about the development or whatever for a moment. Yeah. Uh, which uh, candidly did before the interview. The Tacovas gave us a grant last year, grant. gave a funded list That's a right. grant last year yeah. that included a matching component. Mm. Uh, and to my uh, to my point, I've always tried to impress them on the first grant. Uh, not only did we secure the full match, but uh, we did it with a grant from the MacArthur Foundation. That's right. Which um, and part of, part of why we wanted to have a matching component was to encourage me to go out and fundraise right and uh, that's that's pretty good right? right being able to bring on the macarthur foundation which is something i now try to mention now, in most of the conversations i'm in here's a question for you because i honestly can't remember uh did we ask you if a match was okay before we offered it meaning did we as the funder say to you as the as the applicant would you be up for a match uh or did so we just I'll say, say we would match uh so uh, george told me about it we were having dinner it was actually after uh, an interview he ran the uh, machine for me uh, and I quite frankly I was excited about it uh, it's good to have a match yeah. as a fundraiser so I don't 
on, I think it may have been, if it's okay with you, we'd like to do it this way. Okay. But I was like, yes, absolutely, let's do it that way. Okay. Uh, I even, I remember saying, uh, this is better than if you're just giving me the full amount. Yeah. Also, before that, our funder was the Moth Family Foundation. Yeah. So that was a very big, anything was, I was pretty excited about. Yeah. And also being able to have the, um, the leverage from a match offer uh, to go out and, uh, these, especially when you're starting out, you know, having a, a established foundation say, you know, we're matching gifts uh, is very useful. I also, in addition to MacArthur, which did close it out, uh, that was very useful for me to recruit the original uh, founding board, yeah. whom I encouraged all to make gifts. And I was yeah. able to say to all of them, your gifts are being matched by Tacovas. Yeah. Right, which I guess I could have said if you'd just given me the amount. But again, I am burdened with an abundance of integrity. No, it really holds me back sometimes. The reason I ask is because we, the reason I ask is because we try. That's a good question. We yeah. try to be the funder that that works in partnership. Like we try to be the funder that's like, hey, this is what we're thinking, rather than sort of handing down from on high. And I, I emphasize try because sometimes we're better at it than others, and with some grantees, we're better at, at it than others. And I just mm. couldn't remember how we had the conversation with you, and hoped we had done it in a way that I would feel good about. George told me about it over beers, which was great. <laughs> George is good for that. Um, the, for many things, the, also, I, did, I think it was a le- legally you were required you would have had to do it that way. Um, a foundation. This is a, uh, something not a lot of even foundation people know. You can't be more than fifty percent of the funding to any. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Group. The public support test is real, but that's rolling over three years, so you can do it. I like to be. I like to take a Caesar's wife approach to these yeah. things. I think even I, so. There's the, I'm aware of what laws are. Yeah. It's not why I do things. No, I know. I I don't. I think you shouldn't have one funder who gives you more than fifty percent. Like I, I actually totally. But, <laughs> if, but if it's in your first couple of years, I feel differently, strongly about that because you know you're. It just takes something else in your first couple of years. Yeah. No, and I should. That's something I should know. I think you're right. It is over. I think it does have to be over three years. I mean, Certainly I, the IRS wouldn't catch on to you no, until three no. years went by. I, so. I applaud your integrity on it. What I'm saying is that especially for newer organizations, usually you're going to have one or two that are your primary funders until you can build that deeper base. Mm-hmm. So that was more the... Ideally, no one should be giving you ever giving you more than 50% of your funds. Yes. Correct. That is best practice. The, I think in general, the best practice would be to have 5 million donors who all give you $1. <laughs> Unless you need what do you go ten million, or like whatever your budget is, that many people all giving you one dollar. Yeah. That way you can feel free to to piss off any individual one of them, and it will have no effect on your right? even large a whole room full of them. You could piss them all off, and it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> um, so uh, you so uh, you were talking a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. uh, someone about the political climate, which obviously changed quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I have been in town for a long time. I saw Bush the White House become the Obama White House, and there's yeah. quite a bit of change there. Uh, this is much more change. Um, it seems like it to me anyway. Yeah. Um, how would you say nonprofits uh, who are working on issues should approach the political climate? I think the best practice has been for nonprofits to avoid you mean, Do you mean issues whatsoever. that are traditionally associated with the progressive movement? Or, you know, so are you talking about like uh, immigration related, women's rights? reproductive health like, tell me more about what you mean because if, if there's positive change you're affecting trying to affect in the world and this is going to sound like I'm being partisan but I'm just trying to be as objective as possible actually uh, if you're if there's a social problem you're trying to work on in the world the, our president is making it more difficult um, in particular making the um, uh, f- particularly relevant for the people and feel f- obviously there are people who are going to disagree with me on that I and that say, he yeah, himself yeah. probably disagrees with me on that yeah. and the people who work for him yeah. I'm 
I'm I'm willing to have a very long conversation with with facts uh, <laughs> that like that that, that, right. that prove it. It's not really what I want to do now. Right. Uh, I think he it's a this is a negative force for the for the social sector. Yeah. Yeah. I think I don't think I do not exactly. Yeah. Uh, and everything. I mean, the, the guy suggested uh, abandoning NIH. Yeah. No more NIH, which is the number one National Institute fun- of Health. Really. The National Institutes of Health. <laughs> more than one institute. That it is more than one institute. Which is important. Sorry, it's an enormous. It's an enormous amount of funding. Getting right. rid of that would yeah. have shattered the social yeah. sector. The CDC. Hospitals would have closed. People would have died. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and they probably are going to die even with them. And you want to get rid of the National Endowment for Humanities as well, which would have right. If you're working in anything. Right. That is going to negatively affect your ability to fundraise and help people. Right. Anything, no, no matter what, no matter what your political persuasion. On this point, I agree with you. Uh, so he is making things more difficult for people trying to accomplish social change, and I think, and I don't, and Bush uh, suggested cuts to things as well, probably not yeah. NIH, um, but um, I don't think he was a. Necess- I think he thought differently than I did, but I don't think he was a harmful. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he had a harmful effect on the social sector in the same way. Because yeah. and you're, there's lots of other things, right? That some, they might be working on a specific. They might be working on uh, on the dreamers, right? Yeah. Or something very that he's very specifically making it more difficult for. Right. But no matter what you're doing, I think he's. I think the the the, the current and not just Trump. Yeah. The current political environment is much different than when Bush was president. Yeah. I worked for a very progressive liberal place yeah. while Bush was president. It uh it, it, it we we were. More or less fine. Yeah. Um, right. We weren't in power, but like, right. The, and and we, there were things we wanted to see done differently. But we were able to fundraise. We were able to, right. We were able to raise a decent amount of money. Right. The um, you know able to work in ways. Uh, a lot of like a lot of these folks on this issue see are you know the, the uh, you know can be quite difficult. Yeah. As a result, for most of my career, um, I, when I was working at the Seed Foundation, for instance, we had mm-hmm. Republican and Democratic donors, mm-hmm. and you were really and we uh, we had a Republican and a Democratic founder mm-hmm. and Republican and Democratic staff working there, and we were very. And we, honestly, we had your support. party almost didn't make a difference, right? It just was like. Well, we had. I remember we had support from. This is we had support from O'Malley and Ehrlich up in yeah. Maryland for the school we were building in Maryland. Uh, we had an event once, and we had to really we had to rigor, rigorously schedule it because uh, O'Malley and Ehrlich couldn't be there at the same time. <laughs> Uh, but they did both come yeah. to the same event, um, and you know, I don't think I think uh, that was the right that was the right way for us to raise the most amount of money to build that school, uh, right? It's by by being non truly nonpartisan entity, which we really were. Yeah, I suspect you really can't do that anymore. Yeah, uh, you can't expect to have donors from both sides of the aisle for your program. I think it depends. Maybe but... for some things, for the yeah. arts or whatever. Not for most most of the people. And I'll say this. I don't think a single Trump supporter has sent a proposal to the unfunded list. If they did, I, I would be surprised to find out. Yeah. I don't think that's the, the sort of people who are trying to raise money for the sort of social change that we review. And so, and so your question for me is, what do nonprofits do right now? How, which, yeah, which, how should they, I mean, no, like, I, like I, and I know this is tough without a specific one and you're going to want to narrow it down, but no, again, no matter what you're working on, can I talk about funders instead? There's got to be an, yeah, with which fit, might get me to the nonprofit. I, I'm, yeah, yeah, please do. Um, and funders are nonprofit foundations are nonprofits too. Sorry. Yes. Foundations are nonprofits too, but you're thinking about, yeah, that wasn't really what I was asking. Action in the same way or in a different way. Oftentimes. But I think fun, this is a question for funders to answer as well. Yeah. yeah if they, yeah, yeah. let's say you were, and I assume Tacobus was probably largely non or transpartisan or whatever for a while there um wouldn't openly say wouldn't openly oppose the president no. uh, not that you're not that you're necessarily making press releases now right, right? no um but uh the the you know 
And, 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 and perhaps your answer might be, yes, they should continue to be nonpartisan. They should continue to avoid politics and focus on their issue area. Um, That's an answer you could give. I obviously, I think it's clear I, I would disagree with that, but... I also, in that case, I think it depends. The, th the thing that I want to say to funders, and by funders, I don't just mean foundations or philanthropists. I mean, if, if you are moved to give money in service to a cause to make social change, right? And so when I said at the opening that everyone is a giver, if this is a way in which it, your activism takes, if it, or a form that your activism takes, is, is the distribution of capital of whatever scale. Here's what I would say. Hmm. Um especially in the first year of the administration, and it's double bonus, especially in the first three to six months of the administration of the Trump administration, um, wonderfully, gratefully, happily, excitedly, the ACLU has more money than they know what to do with. Planned Parenthood nearly has more money than... ACLU joined Y Combinator. Yes, they did. They have their own thread in Y Combinator. Planned Parenthood has more money than they know what to do with. The Southern Poverty Law Center is doing really, really well. There are a lot of these organizations that are... These big institutions, which trust me, I am not anti-big institution, but there are these big institutions. I want to point out real quick that those organizations very much were partisan, talked about Trump as part of the fundraising effort. True, true. Um, though the ACLU has also been the Trump administration, or been what the ACLU is, which is the defender of the First Amendment, uh, and still taken some heat for doing that. They have changed a couple of policies, especially post-Charlottesville, but... You know, if mm -hmm. they they will defend cross burners as much as they will defend, um, you know, high school kids walking out of school, and that's I would say as much. They will defend they cross will burners. Defend, they will defend you. They will not defend you if you're violent, but they will defend you. I would um, say cross burning is violent, but I'm not ready on the law. What I'm saying <laughs> yeah, is they're right. the defender of the no, first amendment. But my only point is that they definitely the fund, especially right after they did, did, did not did not avoid the no, issue. No, no, definitely, they were not non fully fundraised off of the Trump administration. That is real. And by the way, I would. It was a very successful strategy. Very successful. They should have done it. People wanted to give money. They needed a place for it, and those organizations were there and ready. I make a monthly gift. Uh, Anthony Romero and and Cecil Richardson. Uh, Cecil Cecilia Richards. Um, I was like, is it, I've been getting that. No, like, I yeah, that no, that was my, that was my <laughs> um, our incredible leaders. All of that's true. And now is the moment because they are so flush. A, they are becoming grant makers themselves and distributing capital throughout their networks. But it is a moment where you, as an activist, can start doing some homework to see who else, what other smaller organizations, what other grassroots organizations. In particular, there's probably, just to plug for local organizations, there's probably a local chapter of ACLU in your own community. There's the ACLU of the National Capital Region. Right. Uh, if you live in California, there's probably, there's like 10 different ACLUs. There are. Who are probably working on stuff that's very directly relevant to you. And on the ground. And uh, the same is true ground. with Planned Parenthood. I mean, so... Yes. Uh, we, the foundation does not do work with Planned Parenthood, but we as individuals do work with Planned Parenthood, and we have actually made a series, this is less true now, but over the last 10 or 15 years, we have been deeply strategic about most of our Planned Parenthood effort going to Texas rather than Ohio, because in Texas, Planned Parenthood just, it needs it more, it is a different kind of threat. Now, that is an ever-shifting landscape, because Ohio is, mm -hmm. is a funny place, um, but we think about those things and we ask ourselves those questions. So as you are, if you are thinking about where you donate in moments like this, ask yourself that question and do some, do some homework about what might feel, uh, what might connect you because those organizations are doing really well. As far as nonprofits, look, I think there is a role for advocacy, which is different than lobbying. I think there is a role for advocacy. I believe strongly in advocacy. I don't think it is a tool for all seasons. 
And I don't think every organization needs to or should do it. And I think you could get wildly distracted from the stuff you should be doing if you're just chasing advocacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think showing up for your, whatever your state version, your, your Hill Day, I, you know, at the state level, at the city level. Absolutely. Uh, showing up at your, um, your uh, senator and congressional, your, the regional offices, doing all that's real. If you run a local nonprofit anywhere in America and you come to D.C., your senator will meet with you. Mm -hmm. I think very few of them know that. Yeah. And probably, if you can schedule it, we'll meet with you back in the local They'll office They'll well. meet with you in the district, too. Uh, I recently was talking to Cory Booker and his chief of staff. Uh, they are extreme to the extent that I can show introduce them to new and interesting projects in New Jersey. Very interested in hearing about that. Yeah. That's probably true for... And I need to, I need, I need to make partnerships with every single science office. Because they know about grants. They know sometimes they can give you... They can get money directly to you. If not, they know somebody. True. Uh, these are, and I think there's a lot of folks that are like, well, we're not political. We have to be nonpartisan. We can't. We wouldn't have those. I, there's a, well, I, the, the second piece of that, by the way, is that the way they still, the way the offices tally uh, public opinion is now almost predominantly still on the phones. So like there is usually some poor intern who gets yelled at all day uh, on the phones, but you need to call and register your opinion or fax and register your opinion. Uh, great. We have been chatting for quite some time. We just hit uh, two hours of raw, oh my gosh. Of raw audio. Uh, we'll probably end up cutting this down to about 90 minutes. I'd like to ask... Uh, Sorry, David Jaffe. That's fine. We, uh, um, it's about average. Uh, a little bit longer than most. Although we've, uh, we've had a lot to talk about. I only got to the first page of questions here, which is great. Um, the, um, uh, there's a, uh, a couple things I want to finish with. Yeah. Uh, in particular, uh, what is the, what's the most exciting thing in philanthropy right now? What are you most excited about? Excited meaning happy, excited meaning nervous, excited meaning just... What do you think will have the most effect on the next 10 to 20 years? Mm. Right. Uh, the most famous or the most publicly well-known version of this phenomenon is the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, but they are not the only ones. I, I would actually say Bloomberg was the first to do this followed quickly by OBDR and Skoll. Um, do what? I'm about to tell you. Are you on the edge of your seat, Dave? Um, no. no, I'm quite comfortable. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> we work does have comfortable chairs, I find. Yes. <laughs> um, they fine. They, they don't just have a foundation as an entity. Like, they don't have a 501c3pf, right? They have... Uh, an LLC, they have an investment arm, they have in some cases a huge media arm, they get really uh, active in public policy, they'll have a 501c4, which is a political money machine. Mm -hmm. um, they structure out multiple levers to wage social change. Skull has a film studio. Skull has a film studio. I, uh, Spotlight is a Skull film, right? Like, mm -hmm. Contagion was a Skull film. I get really excited about this because it's interesting to think about, you know, when Mike Bloomberg was the mayor of New York, if he couldn't get it done through the city council, he'd do it through the foundation. He'd build public support through his media network. Like he, he had all the levers available to him. Thankfully for us, he was a benevolent dictator, right? Mm -hmm. um, I get excited about it. I worry deeply about it. Going back to that whole thing at the beginning of our conversation about my fear around our democratic norms and institutions and the roles that 
philanthropists play. On the one hand, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to think about these tools in terms of social change in a unified and deeply strategic way. On the other hand, it is a whole lot more of not honoring democratic norms, not going through democratic institutions, not being beholden to voters or constituents or having double market failures. It just, it, it makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a lot of what I'm thinking about and a lot of what I'm interested in. I'm also really interested in what a major philanthropic machine coming out of a place like China looks like because it will have to be so intertwined with the government and the government's interests. Um, mm-hmm. That feels to me interesting. I'm neither positive nor negative, just that's very interesting. interesting. Uh, I, I think you're, uh, the, the pursuit of different sorts of structures, uh, particularly by donors from our generation, like the Zuckerberg, the, mm-hmm. the, the CZI. There's also um, this the, the Open Philanthropy Project, and your uh, school has. Uh, I was on a call with school, and they refer to all the different groups combined as the Jeff School Universe. Oh, gosh. They kept saying Jeff School Universe, and I was like, why don't you call it the Scholar System? <laughs> Nicely done, Dave. Thank you. That is outstanding. <laughs> that is a missed opportunity. Well, I think if there's if if if, if it's possible, one of my the lasting legacies I leave on the philanthropic sector is that they will start calling it the Scholar System because that is the obvious choice. You'll have to listen at the Skull World Forum and see if it heads up. No, they uh, it's very so they have Skull has the, the film studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a one foundation that focuses entirely on nuclear nonproliferation. Yeah, and, the global threats. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the awards he does, and then yeah. also the forum, and they have this like oh. Uh, that is very interesting. And then there's his private foundation. It's just like the Jeff School or Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and in particular, also, the, and there's a number of other philanthropies I know that do this. You know, you don't always need the the to go through the official tax yeah. benefit structure to support programs. Yeah. Which is uh, Zuckerberg got uh, some flack for that. I was I couldn't understand. Like anybody criticizing him for having an LLC to do this just does not understand how philanthropy works. Right. Right. It, it, having the LLC will allow him to make investments in things that, that he wouldn't necessarily get right. there. Right. Whereas there's lots of foundations out there saying, "Well, I can't fund that because it's not a 501c3." That's accountants prattle. Yeah. If you have social change you want to accomplish in the world, and you're like, "Well, I can't accomplish it because." Accountants prattle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like you're not a good philanthropist in that sense, right? Is right. it very similar to I have um, uh, I have a rescue inhaler for my uh, very mild asthma. Yeah. Uh, my insurance company will pay it's seventy five dollars. Insurance will pay for three dollars worth of it, and because of that, my doctor will only give me three refills at a time because that's all the insurance will approve. Right. Again, I pay seventy two dollars. Insurance pays three. Right. I would like more than three refills. Right. We won't, I can't get them because and so and I I can't even say let's remove insurance from this the doctor doesn't won't, right. won't deal with it. There's this weird silly rule that prevents us from actually giving me the the medical care I need. Right. <laughs> uh, and bear, and often philanthropists will get um, the tricked up on on rules as well. Yeah. Zuckerberg doesn't no, need that's true. Zuckerberg doesn't need tax deductions. He's not giving for the tax. He has more money than he could ever possibly spend. He has more money than his great grandchildren. Right, no, totally true. <laughs> so if he wants to start giving through an LLC, have more flexibility, that makes not just, I'm not just cool with it. That's like, I, that, that makes 100% um, sense to me. Um, right, the, I think where it gets um, unnerving, or when someone like Bloomberg is also right in office, I think Zuckerberg might be eyeing office as well. Yeah. And this isn't that new. Rock, uh, Nelson, no, Rock, it, Nelson Rockefeller me, did the same it, thing. It's, it's, it's not a new phenomenon, but it... It, it feels it's been and it's been poorly done in the past. It's, right, um, um, right. The that's very interesting. One of the and um, uh, it um, I find that there are lots of conversations about that. 
about how these like really big players are uh, contributing and there's uh, talks about celebrity philanthropy and all of that. Yeah. One of the things that I find missing from these conversations uh, is that everyday people give as well. Almost every American gives. Um, in fact, small dollar donations from individuals is almost as much money as Gates and Bloomberg and these people right. are giving. And people tend to give more of their percentage of wealth. So uh, folks who have less money tend to give more. To different things. Yeah. You're much more likely to give, uh, if you're running a social services thing, yeah. you're much more likely to get a donation from somebody who's actually needed those social services yeah. than from somebody who's just thinking about like, it wouldn't be great if we offered these services. Yeah. Right? Um, so if you look at where, uh, particularly low income Americans give, yeah. uh, their church, uh, their YMCA, things that have actually helped them. And they often don't even think about it as philanthropy. They're giving what they can, yeah. uh, which is um, very dear. And they wouldn't say, they, would, they wouldn't say they are philanthropists. No. The word philanthropist has a negative, overwhelmingly negative connotation for yeah. low income Americans and an overwhelmingly positive connotation for, uh, high and middle income Americans. What does it mean that I hate it? Uh, you hate it. You hate the nebulous nature of the word, and would hate any word that has become that nebulous. I feel mm. when low when low income Americans have a negative reaction, they're thinking of the like. Usually, these are black and brown Americans thinking of the like white person who came in and said, "I'm going to solve all your problems." Mm. Built half a school and then left. No, I, I hate the arrogance part of it too. And I would hate that too if somebody came into my community and told me yeah. they were going to. I don't like that either. Right. So, um, but, but anyway, but, sorry, I digress. Uh, no, this is you digressed into a philanthropy conversation, which is the point of <laughs> open door philanthropy. Um, so um, that's very interesting. Are, do you uh, have any uh, plans or thoughts yourself of uh, perhaps different structures or anything? You mentioned you were uh, perhaps doing some strategic planning this spring. <laughs> we are doing strategic planning this spring. Uh, I am trying actually not to think about it. I find that one of the regular patterns in our board work uh, for Tacovis is that I do a lot of thinking and read a lot uh, of other structure ideas or other strategy ideas and develop what I think are some best practice recommendations. And the board kind of engages with them and kind of doesn't and often feels frustrated. They feel like I've just imposed it rather than, well, I think I've, or I feel like I've done them a service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying really hard to not do any of that and, and instead think about questions that will help us explore together, um, which for me as a person is a lot of self-control that is, I'm not very good at, <laughs> frankly. Um, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's somewhat interesting. Yeah, but it's been, it's, I, I hear the family dynamic though, I understand and I receive it, so I'm trying to help change that dynamic. Uh, well, you mentioned um, this will be the final uh, final question today. Yeah. You've been a real sport. Uh, you mentioned you enjoy uh, reading uh, new things and learning new things. Yeah. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your diligent service as an evaluator for the uh, Unfunded List. Mm-hmm. Mary has received her batch of proposals as of yesterday. Uh-huh. And she will read them and provide the feedback to me by the end of this month. I will. I'm pretty good at being on the like <laughs> twice, I think. That's fine. We plan for it. Um, <laughs> a lot of folks are late. Um, the, no, a lot of my work is you know chasing down as much feedback as I can, yeah. uh, and putting into the reports. When the when the feedback comes in on time, it makes it a lot easier for us to get the reports out on time. Um, and um, you know, I will encourage all the people who read your feedback to also listen to that episode. Um, oh God! <laughs> so they can have a little bit more information about who it is that's uh, giving them those notes. Um, but um, uh, thanks very much uh, for all that you do uh, for the unfunded and the Unfunded List organization in particular. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me by your office to chat today. Oh my gosh, come back. 
Uh, is there, uh, do you have uh, parting words for the folks? Uh, gosh. Actually, I do. It, this has been sitting with me a lot. Um, Great. Yeah, Patton Oswalt is a comedian and a writer, and his first wife died quite suddenly a couple of years ago, uh, and he just released a stand-up special talking about his grieving process after the death of his first wife. And he quotes her throughout that stand-up special. It's quite funny. It's worth spending time on, but um, he quotes her. And I guess what she used to say all the time is, the world is chaos, be kind. And as much as those words are simple, as much as it's sort of an obvious aphorism, in the last few months, just in, the office is literally, we can see the Department of Treasury out my window. Um, that's how close to the White House we are. Everything is chaos. Mm -hmm. And it can be so hard in this moment of chaos to be kind. Um, and so that's just been sitting with me. So my parting, my parting bit of wisdom is the world is chaos. I honestly think most people are just trying to do the best they can. Be kind and receive kindness when it comes. Uh, there it goes. The world is chaos. Be kind. This has been Open Door Philanthropy with Mary Galetti from the Tacoma Foundation. Thank you for listening.